Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter. I have an exciting announcement to make. I am offering a chance to win a free 30-minute consultation with me. Entering is very simple. Just share an episode on any social media platform, tag me, or send a screenshot to hpopodcast at gmail.com. This is important because if you don't tag share with me, I may not see it and be able to enter you in the raffle. You can enter as many times as you want. There will be a winner announced during the show intro at the beginning of each month. I appreciate all the listeners who have participated in this so far. It really does go a long way in helping me grow the show when you share the episodes you like with your friends, family, and followers. Also, a new way to enter the raffle is to submit a show review on your favorite podcast platforms. Other ways to support the show is you can head to the show landing page, which is just zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. There you will be able to find access to the show Patreon page where you can actually access shows early and ad free by subscribing to the show on Patreon. You can also donate in other ways on that landing page, as well as access the full catalog of episodes, descriptions, show notes, and transcripts if you're interested in diving into some of the previous episodes. I do want to give a quick shout out to my Endurance Training Simplified series of episodes. It's gotten quite long, so I listed them in the show notes. You can link to each one of those there, but if you're looking to start your endurance journey or just really fine tune it, I have a whole series of episodes that deal with just training principles in general and the different components that go into it between like easy running, speed work with short intervals, long intervals, long run development, the mental side of training, all sorts of different stuff. So check those out in the show notes if you're interested in refining your endurance training. If you'd like a little bit of extra support in your training, I'm actually launching a new coaching package. So this new one is actually a group training process that is online. What it is, is if you subscribe to it, you will get access to my full catalog of pre-made endurance plans, which range from 5K up to 100 mile, come in multiple levels in multiple different durations. And you have access to that as long as you're subscribed. So if you decide to train for a specific distance or event, all you got to do is let me know, and I send you the copy of that particular training program. But what comes with it is what is important, in my opinion, is when you're subscribed to this new coaching group coaching package, you will also be able to attend a weekly meeting with me and the other group members where we will cover topics that I find important for your endurance training journey, as well as questions and schedule adjustments that you have submitted beforehand and then also some live questions from the group. The group size is going to be limited to 30 though. So make sure you sign up soon because I will be starting this program before the end of 2023 to make sure people have access to this by the start of the new year. You can find information on that by just heading to my website at zachbitter.com or linking to it in the show notes. Supporting the show this year are my friends at Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. I have full descriptions about how I use both of these products in my training and racing at the end of the show. So if you're interested in checking that out, please stick around after this episode. For now, just some discounts and promotions from both of these products. Element Electrolytes is offering a free sample pack with your first purchase. Just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. 
They have a no questions asked money back guarantee if you are unsatisfied. They also just released their warm beverage winter collection, which now includes raspberry chocolate. I just checked it out. It will be in my morning coffee protocol this winter. Delta G Ketone is the exogenous ketone company that has almost all of the research behind its formula. They are trusted by professionals around the world. You can get 20% off with code BITTER20. Just go to deltagketones.com. There you can also sign up for a free consultation where they will help you understand how their product may fit best in your lifestyle. And then you can compare it to mine. Links to both of these products can be found in the show notes as well as the show sponsor landing page, which is zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Uh, the backyard stuff. Yeah, the backyard stuff's crazy. Yeah, they have uh, one of the the bigger ones, the Bigs Backyard. That's this week, that? right? Yeah, they're doing it right now. They started on Saturday. And last I checked, which was like maybe an hour ago, I think they were on like 56 yard or something like oh that. And they had one... One report, I can't remember the, the lady's name, but they're like, she passed out crossing the finish line of the yard and they're carrying her back to her tent. So I'm <laughs> guessing she's not going back out for the next year. Oh my gosh. And it, with these ultra runners, you never know them. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if she got back after it. Because it, each yard is like 4.117 yeah. or whatever it is. In that particular event, the way they do it is they start, or during the, during the day you're on a trail, and then you switch to a road at night. So oh. they do have a little bit of variance in that oh, one. I didn't know that. Most of them, I think it's the same loop just because they probably don't have a whole lot of options yeah. outside of that. But That's surprising for that one especially because that's like the original one, right? Mm-hmm. And that, is it yeah. Laz? Is he the guy that... Yep. It, he seems like the more torture, the better. Yeah. He's got a weird kind of way of it where he adds a bunch of little like kind of characteristics yeah. where it, you can see the masochism in there. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I mean, to come up with some of these races, like the... What is the main one um, that he also puts on? Oh, uh, Barclays. Barclays, yeah, that yeah. one. I mean, who even comes up with that stuff? It's crazy. I yeah, I had a John Kelly on the podcast not yeah. too long ago, and he's won it. He he won it, and he's finished twice now. So it was a, a weird year where three people finished. So that's crazy. He was second this year despite finishing, and it was fun fun to hear him talk about that. Where it's just like it is always like a little bit of a calculation because. He wants it to be doable. He doesn't like it to be something where like everyone is like, there's no way anyone's going to finish. So there has to be like a sliver of chance, Right. but it can only be a sliver. <laughs> yeah. I mean, three people out of, do you know how many people did it this year? That's a good question. I don't know how many are in there. It's not a ton. It's less than a hundred, I believe. Yeah. But yeah. And, and I remember like, I guess the weather was really good this year. So I asked John about that. I was like, well, what is he going to do then? Because he doesn't want to. Because normally you would think, okay, three people finished, he's going to make it like they're in trouble next year, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. But he's like, well, maybe not because he doesn't want to do that and then have bad weather come through, which isn't uncommon, and then have it be a situation where, like no one can finish a lap. Right. So, or and, a yard, or not a yard. Uh, yeah, it's a lap there. Have so. you seen the uh, Gary Robbins documentary? Mm-hmm. That's, That's one of pretty my wild. favorites. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Could you imagine? Oh my gosh. It was like six seconds he missed it by? Yeah. Spoilers? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and I believe with his situation was he... He uh, he actually got off course too, or something like that. Yeah. And he had he knew at the time I'm not gonna be able to fix this mistake, so I might as well just carry on because he would have got timed out if he had went back to try to right. fix the mistake. But I was like, that's what I was most interested in talking to John about was just like, you have this like if you finish, it's gonna be barely under sixty hours. 
So you're looking at that relative sleep deprivation and everything in a scenario where you already really can't make a whole lot of mistakes. Right. So like when you're, when you're out there for 50 hours and it's just like you're one mistake away from this whole thing unraveling on you, just like the, the psychological damage you could do to a person <laughs> if they're like really invested in that event. The sleep deprivation of those mm-hmm. has got to be one of the hardest things to overcome. Like I, one of my friends, Pierce, just completed the triple crown of yeah, 200s. I saw that. And I, I haven't talked to him uh, since Moab, but I think he slept maybe like four to six hours mm-hmm. across 90 hours it took to finish. It's like, mm-hmm. that. It, it's from what I've known from him, it's the sleep deprivation is the hardest part of those. I would think so. I know, and it's it's different from one person to the next yeah. too, I think. I remember one of the, the first times I really started looking at that side of the sport was there's an event in Phoenix called Across the Years where they start three days at the end of one year and then the next three days into the next year for their six-day event. Oh, okay. So hence Across the Years. Yeah. And they had a year where it was like a little more a little more of a production because the Giannis Kuros was coming in at the time. He had basically all the timed event world records. And he was older at that point. I think he was almost he wasn't even 60 years old. So he had like transitioned all the way just to like six days because that's what he could be competitive with yet at that point. And he was uh, kind of going back and forth between Joe Fegis, this guy from the U.S. And uh, Joe actually slept a lot more than, than Giannis did. And Giannis had like such a strict plan, though. He had his crew detailed to the point where he had eight hours during the six days that he could sleep and was all like exact. And he's like, don't let me deviate from the plan at all. And at one point, I was following the live stream. It was like day five. And they're like, Giannis is weaving in and out of the loop and he's running into fences. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so who, ended up, who ended up winning? Joe Fee just ended up winning. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was, he, yeah. So I think it, you know, I was looking at, there's actually some reasonably good research on this it, compared to what you would think for something like this. And it, it's on cycling stuff because mm-hmm. they've had a lot more like long stage cycling stuff. Right. And they did one one year. I can't remember what the event was, but they had a team that used it as a strategy they started sleeping a little earlier than most people would expect. And they ended up uh, doing much better at the end to the degree that they were like probably moving fast enough to justify whatever time they spent sleeping. And my only question with that was like, if you're on a bike, obviously you have to be a little more attuned to what's going on because you know, you can't really be falling off the bike the way you can just stumble around (laughs) when you're running. No, I believe it. Um, I I can't speak from experience because I haven't done anything longer than a 50 miler, but uh, from being uh, with Pierce for like the Tahoe 200 that he did, I paced him for there and that race, he was way more strict on like, okay, I'm only going to sleep for 90 minutes at a time. I'm going to sleep not at all the first night. I'm only going to sleep the second night. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't have a great race. He finished it, but it was a struggle for sure. Then the second race was harder, but he went way more based off of feelings. Like if I feel like I need to take a nap, I'm just going to, lay in the dirt, take a nap if mm-hmm. I need to, sleep whenever, or even as long as I want to. Uh, and he had a much better race because of that. And then in my own experience too, it seems like when I don't have a super strict plan to adhere to and I just kind of go off of feel mm-hmm. throughout the race and be a little bit more adaptable, that's where I have better races. And it seems like that's kind of the key with some of these longer things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you start trying, to, the way I look at ultras in general is you want to have a plan and a structure there so that you're not like, just throwing caution to the wind, right. but you should go in knowing that like there's going to be some deviation and there's going to be some sliding of things. So I think sleep fits into that where Mike McKnight talks about this, where when he got into the longer stuff, he would say, okay, I'm going to try to plan a sleep at, I mean, some of it's like 
you have these big aid stations with sleeping cots. It's like, well, yeah, yeah that's where you want to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and, but if you get there and you can't fall asleep, you just waste your time lying around versus you're out there barely functioning and you could lay down and sleep on the dirt. That's the spot you got to do right. it, I guess. So. Yeah, having some sort of plan, but being adaptable mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. knowing you might need to deviate yeah. if, if certain things come up. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. But non-sleeping related events, 244.10, was it? Uh, shoot. 244.11. 11. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So we're talking about the Chicago Marathon, which yeah. you just got back from not too long ago with a goal of running a sub 245, which you clearly yeah. got. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. It hurt a little bit, but, um, I mean the weather I, for me, I feel like the weather is the number one factor on race mm-hmm. day. Like I train as intentional as I can for nutrition. So I try and eliminate any kind of error mm-hmm. for nutrition things. Uh, try and train for the course as much as I can in terms of like elevation gain or turns and things like that. Uh, but the weather is like the one thing in my opinion that is totally out of your control that can have the largest effect. So I basically won the letter, the weather lottery. Uh, I mean, world record was set that same day too. So I think they can attest to that as well. But, uh, no, I mean, everything went perfectly to plan. I like to set like a goal, B goal, C goals going into races and a goal was sub 245 and everything went according to plan. So didn't you have to think about Beagle? Really didn't <laughs> have to think about it. No. Um, it was like an eight minute PR from what I ran in Boston earlier this year. Boston's mm-hmm. obviously a little bit harder course, uh, more hilly for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was happy with it overall. Um, eight minute PR. I mean, if it was a 10 second PR, I would have been happy, but mm-hmm. even just getting that, that goal time was good too. And even, I mean, the, for me at this point, the goal times are kind of arbitrary, but being able to set a goal and go out and execute on it is a good feeling. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you put a lot of work into it. So, yeah. and structuring the training around it, so you kind of have that like in the back of your mind the whole time is that right. like sub two forty five number. Uh, did you? Was it pacing pretty even the whole way? Were you just kind of hitting your split, or did you have a little bit of strategy there? Yeah, I always tried a negative split, uh, just because from my, my my very first marathon I did early twenty twenty two was a very it was a wreck of a marathon. I still ran three hours flat, so it was like in terms of marathons for first marathons, it was good. Um, but yeah, positive splits like the whole time went out at like 620 pace Mm -hmm. should have been at like 650 or seven minutes and just slowly digressed throughout the race. Uh, so I learned my lesson there, just bonked really hard at mile 20 and I was like, I'm never doing that again. And so every race I've done since then I've negative split and I finished feeling a lot stronger. Um, just the race as a whole feels a lot better because you're Mm not fighting the whole way. You're kind of just comfortable more or less for the majority of it and it doesn't really get hard till maybe mile 20 or so mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean as far as the splits i mean i think the goal pace is about 615 per mile i want to say the first 5k 10k i was like 620 or so so even a little bit slower than than goal marathon pace and then from there slowly got into a rhythm and kind of locked in around that seven that 615 and i think my last mile was like a six oh eight or something like that so mm-hmm. negative splits my, my front half was a 122 something and then the back half was a 121 so nice um like i i'm a huge believer of negative splits for for marathons at least um not sure how that played in ultra yeah. but i think they probably have a big application in ultra too. in fact i've i mean this is a bit of a uh interesting topic for me i think like that's the biggest point of improvement that even the top end of the field will likely see from outside of like just the increase in talent we'll see over the next however many years with the current kind of talent we have the biggest leap forward i think in like times would be better better pacing yeah. because it's it's weird it's like i mean you had that experience with the marathon where it's almost that perfect distance where it's 
just long enough and just fast enough at the same time where if you make a mistake like you did, like you really get just clapped by that yeah. thing. And There's it's not enough not time to make it all. up. Right. Yeah. It's not enough time to make it up. It's just this miserable kind of weird, moderate intensity to be discomfortable in yeah. or uncomfortable in. Whereas with ultra marathons, I feel like it's just the, the, the length of the race and the duration, it just feeds into this, this mindset of like, it's going to kind of suck at the end, no matter what there's, it's hard to wrap your mind around feeling good. Like, you know, like, like a day into a race or something yeah. like that. So I think people intuitively just think, well, I should be banking time early. And then since it's lower intensity, it's easier to accidentally bank time early. And I just think that ends up kind of burning. I think it burns mental energy. And I think what ends up happening is the way I think people can relate to this is like, you know, how early in a race, if you go through like an aid station, you have like this sense of urgency and you're just like, all right, I got to get through. I got to be efficient. You do what you got to do, but you are quick and you, you're not wasting around any time. But then at the end, if you're fading, you're just like, you're looking for reasons to slow down and yeah. stop. You're like, oh, well, maybe I'll just go over and pick at that. Maybe and before you know it, it's like, you know, you were saving three or four seconds here and there in the beginning and wasting three or four minutes here and there at the right. end. So the way I describe it is like, if you can get yourself in a position where you're actually even to negative splitting or the way I like to look at it is like, maybe like a percentage to either side of even is probably like the operating zone. And if you can stay in there, the experience at the end of the ultra is so much better. And most people just don't ever get to that because they're always positive splitting them. Right. And it took me forever to get to that point where I actually had a race where I raced like that. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I want that way. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely my experience. In my first 50, uh, at Bighorn last summer in 20 or sorry. Yeah. 2022. Um, I, I went out hard. <laughs> like, uh, it's hard with that race too. Cause the first 18 miles are, lot of downhill you you lose a few thousand feet and so it's easy to run fast mm -hmm. um but going way too fast and then blew up my quads and my t-band was tight and everything and so i, I basically walked the last like 30k of the race mm -hmm. uh just because it it was just a mess of a day again poor planning and poor training and all that going into it um so learning learn the lesson the hard way but yeah i'm a huge fan of of negative splits or at the very minimum positive splits or sorry even splits mm -hmm. um is that your plan for javelina this weekend yeah, yeah. And the only caveat I'll say to that approach is, I mean, you do have courses that right. it's not super clear as to, like, what your pace is based on Africa. Because you'd have a course where the first half is, like, significantly more difficult or easier than the second half, in which case it's like, how do you know? Right. <laughs> but, I mean, there's probably – you could probably at least ballpark whether somebody is, like, running strong or not at the end and kind of play it out. but. Yeah, at Javelina, you know, what I actually did is, so I raced it in 16 and 17, and I was just looking at my splits from that, and I had, like, most people consider good races there. I mean, I won it in 16, was second in 17. In 16, I set the course record at the time, but when I looked at my splits, I was like, I left a ton of time on the table there by just going too fast in the beginning. Yeah. And there's a little bit of, I think if you even split Javelina, you probably will be slower on, like, loops three and four just because of the heat, if it's, like, even reasonably warm that day. You just have a situation where you start and it's 60 degrees dry, perfect. And then you get to the middle of the day, like in 2016, actually had course record temps. So it hit like 102 degrees. Oh my God. And then most years though, it's like maybe more like 90. And if you get a really lucky year, which we might have this year, actually, it's going to be in the low eighties. Yeah. So it gets warm enough where I think like you're probably just logistically, you're going to do a little more to make sure you're staying on top of that. And you might just be moving a little slower in general because of it. But I think it still should be pretty tight. So I had some splits at the end where I was looking at it and I'm like, yeah, I should have gone 15 seconds slower across the board here. And that probably would have saved me minute, two minutes per mile in certain spots at the end. And hopefully that'll be enough to, 
to make it a little bit more, a little faster right. anyway. So yeah, I feel like uh, the negative splits work obviously very well in like the shorter distances, like a marathon or shorter. Mm-hmm. But when you get into the ultras, like you start talking about the weather, and I'm like, yeah, if it's you know 40 degrees in the morning and then it's 80 degrees in the afternoon, like obviously you're gonna have probably some some differences in pacing. Yeah, you know, just based on mm-hmm. external factors. So yeah, I I haven't quite learned that yet because I haven't done a race over. 12 hours quite yet so um i don't know it's tough to tough to say yeah yeah and everyone's gonna be a little different i think you know someone who's sort of shifted my mind on some of the pacing stuff is camille heron because she's she's just ran some incredible races with some really lopsided splits and then uh which you know you could argue well how much faster could she go (laughs) which is kind of a scary thought when you see some of the 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 performances she's put up does she go out faster she goes out really fast Mm -hmm. in my opinion and then You'll have situations where here's where I think she might have something that's like a really, really cool strategy that's going to be, I wouldn't say independent to her because I think a lot of people could probably apply this. And with some luck, when you get into like the really long stuff where she just set the world record for 48 hours not too long ago and she actually slept, well, I don't know how much sleeping she did, but she was like non-move, her non-moving time was a lot more than you expect. Mm. But when she was out there moving, she was moving really quick yeah. relative to what you'd expect for something like that. So like her average pace ended up being like, I think like somewhere in the 10, 10 and a half minute mile pace. But when she was actually like, if you look at her splits on her watch, it would have been a lot faster than that. Right. So it's like, you can make an argument. I think like mechanically speaking, she's just so well tuned to the pace she's actually moving that it behooves her to use that. And since it's such a long mental effort, having those breaks and just knowing that you have those available to you might help her like psychologically. Right. So um, it'll be interesting to see what she does when she does another one. Cause I was, I think that's the only 48 hour that she completed. Anyway, she might've done one in the past that didn't finish, but I mean, she knocked out of the park at that one and it looked a l- little different than I would have expected someone to do for a 48 hours. So how many miles did she hit? Uh, what did she have? I think it was 270 if I'm not mistaken. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Ten minute pace on average for forty eight mm-hmm. hours. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, so she's probably what run like six to seven minute miles and then sleep periodically, basically, or, or take I a think few breaks. It's it's not so. My my thought with that sort of approach, where you're gonna take you're gonna take a hit on more non moving time, is it would be more sp- like kind of calculated like that. Yeah, it seems like she just does it intuitively. She kind of just like runs until it's like. The body's not really functioning well anymore. It's not, this isn't, some things aren't cooperating the way I want it to. So she shuts it down for a bit, eats something, puts her legs up and then gets back out there. And it's like, just starts grinding right away too. Yeah. It's not like, okay, I got to kind of get moving again. It's like back to the racetrack. It's like, yeah. So I, and I think that's maybe where the difference could be. Cause I think some people are maybe less likely to have like a positive experience going from that complete stationary type position back to moving again. Yeah. Whereas she may just be like, enjoy that or prefer that a little bit more than that. Yeah. That's hard to even sitting down for a couple of minutes and trying to get back up. Everything's tight and mm-hmm. muscles are all locked up and she's a little bit older, isn't she? Yeah. I think Camille just turned 42, 41. She's 41 or 42. So yeah, she's, Dang. she's run some fast times. She's making it look, uh, look doable for sure yeah. for, for the older side of the sport that's which, incredible that i mean world records being set mm-hmm. it's like i mean i don't know i would never imagine 40 year olds being able to go out and do that for for running yeah i think there's this uh there's my guess with ultras is you'll be able to see again i think the big bulk of talent is yet to find the sport but you have a situation i think where the intensity is so low relative 
what you what what you what you could do that you have a bit of a balance you, you just like the marathon you do have a balance of like how much foundational work have you had just from years and years of right. running and then the relative experience and you know if you're doing something as long as 48 hours i'm not sure as long as your like body hasn't kind of broken down on you in any weird way you could probably go for a while you know what would be interesting would be somebody who's maybe a little later to running but did a lot of sport in the youth mm -hmm. so their body kind of has a little bit more of less running related beat down uh but they have like just like a, a big fitness base right from, from prior stuff but that might be asking a lot yeah it seems like it's kind of the balance of uh or it's a combination more of like time like you said building up a base i mean like kipchoge just you know well i guess he's now second in the world but, yeah <laughs> um you know had the world record and he's mid 30s mm -hmm. roughly uh but also combined with like the patience that i think is required mm -hmm. for the long distance stuff because uh i don't know i feel like for me the patience aspect is one of the hardest things mm -hmm. it's like I, i'm always constantly reminding myself like my body's more than capable of doing these things it's just uh being mentally ready and mentally focused for that set amount of time um is that something you've struggled with like or like maybe early on trying to like figure out the patient side of things? Yeah, uh, for sure. I would say in the beginning, I looked at everything through the lens of I'll train a ton and I'll have confidence that I'm ready to do this. And there's a little bit of just like ignorance and naivety and stuff like that of yeah. just like, oh, I can do this. And then you kind of get out there and figure it out. Uh, what I've learned though is like really the patient side of it is something that you want to practice during training as much as you do the physical side of it and work on things like, you know, just like holding back in a workout versus trying to have like this killer workout or make it, or here's a big one, like on the long run development, when you get into like the race specific stuff, keeping it at race specific intensity versus running a little bit faster. Cause I mean, you're training for a hundred miles or in some cases further, your long run's probably too fast for what you're going to do on race day. Yeah. So like we're working on that, like, all right, I just need to stay patient and kind of let this come to me. And then the other thing, just the mind game of the entire day is an interesting one where I think you can practice during training a lot more than most people maybe realize. And it's just like kind of looking at the race itself. It's just a compressed version of your training yeah. where you're going to have good workouts, great workouts, you're going to have bad workouts, and that's how the race is going to play out too. So in those particular situations come up, don't think of them as here's my reality for the rest of the race. Think of it as, all right, this is where I am right now, but we're going to have something change soon, and then I can kind of get back to it. And that helps, I think, just chunk the race into more, like, manageable pieces versus yeah. where you get into trouble is when you're out there for 100 miles and you're just thinking about running 100 miles the whole time. That is just too big to wrap your head around, in my opinion. So then you end up kind of burning mental energy versus conserving yeah. it. That's it. I definitely practiced that for Chicago was chunking it up. I kind of use like my, my gels as like each little oh, yeah. check mark. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm not really stopping at aid stations or the water stations during the marathon, but like doing everything in like four mile chunks. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm taking a gel every four miles, salt pill every four miles. So it's like, all right, just get from the start line to mile four and then we'll figure out the rest later. It's I, I've heard like people using segmentation like that in ultras of like, okay, just get to the next aid station yep. or to the next checkpoint. Um, I think that helps a lot because it's otherwise it's so overwhelming to think of, I got 24 miles left to run at this pace. There's no way I'm going to be able to do it, but <clears throat> just get to the next four mile section and then we'll figure it out from there. I think that helps a lot too, just that, that segmentation of things. Mm -hmm. Do you do a, a cold exposure or like cold plunges or anything for like the mental strength kind of stuff? Yeah, I do cold plunges. I don't 
feel like I've done them for the mental stuff. I just love the way you feel when you get out of them. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. But I could see that being something that someone could do to kind of just get themselves used yeah. to. I mean, like, I think yeah, actually it's an interesting topic because I think ultra running is one of those things where you have this situation where the physical training isn't going to be enough to really prepare your mind for what it's about to do. So like you can kind of compound the training day after day and that's going to take care of like the physical aspect of it. But really like doing a, like a dress rehearsal where like your mind is focused for that long, you're not gonna be able to do that with the activity itself or you're going to be doing the race essentially. So I've had, I I always wonder about like, just what can you do like in terms of just structuring your life so that you have opportunities to almost kind of have that like same type of stress for a long period of time and just practice like how do I kind of chunk things in this situation? How do I manage what I'm doing now versus thinking too far ahead but still recognizing where I want to be? And I just think it's busyness. Yeah, I think like there's a balance there obviously because you want to be able to execute your training and you don't want to like overextend yourself. But I think if you stay really busy, it prepares you for these longer races because you're just used to a day that is very, very full and has a lot of things that need to be done, but you know, you have to do them one step at a time. So, I mean, there's probably a point where you want to like relax from that so you can get ready for the race, just like a taper, maybe taper from that busy day (laughs) as well as physically. So, but I, I think that's helped me the most. I find when I have like a lot of structure in my life and a lot of things that I'm interested in and I want to do, but they really fill me from like when I wake up to when I go to bed at night, I'm more mentally prepared for races because yeah. it doesn't feel like it's really that much stressful, that stressful in my yeah, mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, you do a lot like business coaching, mm-hmm. all everything else you do. Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I found two things that I think kind of mimic that mindset late in a race where it kind of gets hard. One is the cold plunge for sure. Mm-hmm. So maybe you've just like, you've uh, graduated from that, <laughs> that mental <laughs> strength uh, level, I guess you could say that. Um, yeah, I feel like cold plunges, for me, the first like 90 seconds are the, it, whatever part of your brain gets lit up, I think mm-hmm. it's like your prefrontal cortex, like that decision-making thing of, should I get out? Should yeah. I, or like the fight or flight, basically. That same thing gets lit up for me in a race mm. when it's like fight or flight. Like, do I keep fighting this and keep pushing forward or do I just bail out and walk and DNF or whatever? So I find if I cold plunge like as consistent as possible, it kind of works that same muscle in, in the brain. Huh. And then um, the other thing too, which is odd, is like road trips. I hate road trips. Yeah. Uh, and I realize this because we drive up to Wyoming every summer. I think it's like 18 hours of driving. We do the whole thing in one day yeah. and it's miserable. <laughs> and I, that's kind of where I learned the segmentation thing is like, okay, get from here to this next like four hour chunk mm-hmm. of the drive. And it's like, because the only time we drive up there is when I go up there to do the Bighorn 50 and it's like three days before the race. And I'm like, this is exactly how I feel when I did the ultra last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, that's what made me realize it's just patience. It's like, mm-hmm. you can keep going. Your car is going to be able to keep driving on this 18 hour road trip, but like you have to be there to man it and make sure that it gets there and stay focused for those 18 hours. So it's like finding different things like that. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, encourage anybody to just go on a road trip for the, for the sake of it, <laughs> for the mental sake of it. But, um, those are the only two things I've been able to find in like everyday life that mimic that same feeling. Yeah. Well, what you're doing there, I think is you're identifying things. So my, my advice for people usually is like take inventory of what you're doing and look for those opportunities because you'll probably find more now. Like if you're looking right. for that and, and that, yeah. Cause like when you think about just how many people, if they, let's, let's just say someone has like a typical job, 
and they get like a project or something like that that's due in two weeks or whenever. And, you know, they're in their mind, they're already intuitively breaking that down. They're like, okay, I know I have to have it done by then, but that means all these different steps along the way. So then once they get to the the outline of that project, they're going to just take it one chunk at a time. So they're doing these things. I think what ends up happening is in life, a lot of these opportunities, they're, they're, they, there's, there's gaps between like the start, the starting and stopping gaps are longer. So like in a race, obviously, like you might have like that checkpoint might only be like a minute, like you're going through that aid station or two minutes before you have to start back up again. So it's like, how do you kind of work on that when you have a bigger gap between that, when you might have like a full lunch break or something like right. that, or, but you can still kind of, I think, appreciate the process. And if you recognize that you're doing it that often, you start to kind of get what I think is a more positive shift in your mind where you think like, oh, this is something I've actually practiced a bunch of times versus something I need to learn on the fly right. and can almost, almost trick yourself into thinking I'm, I'm ready for this versus I'm not ready for this. And, yeah. but that's all it is, is that kind of like when your mind goes negative, how do you bring a positive and right. that endless battle until you get to the finish line? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the mental side of running is for sure what got me into it initially and what like keeps me doing it. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I was, I was thinking about this the other day, like running as an activity is probably one of the most boring, simple <laughs> things you can do. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but and, and like, I, I feel like, I don't know if I actually have ADHD or some kind of attention deficit thing, but I get so bored with things so easily mm -hmm. that I'm always on to the next thing, but I've been running consistently essentially every day for five years. And I'm like, how am I able to do this incredibly objectively boring thing mm -hmm. for years, but all these other things, I, I just have to move on to the next thing. And I, I think it's the mental side of things that is so intriguing and like keeps me coming back. Cause it's like there, you, you can make infinite gains in it. Basically. It's not yeah. like you can, you know, there's no end to it basically, which I really like. Yeah. And there's a bunch of different objectives or targets you can focus on. So it's like, you know, you get guys like, you know, Andy Glaze, who's yeah. got like all these different inputs that he's, trying to use it for and then there's like you know guys like me who are trying to chase like how fast can i run 100 miles yeah. or one of the most interesting topics that i'm looking to dive into more on the podcast in the next few months is just, just like this new wave of like hybrid runners or people coming into the sport that weren't traditional into running and just trying to kind of hear those stories about what kind of drew you to it what keeps you here with it because there's still like there's still a lot of i think thought with running where people were doing it when they were doing, if they're, if they were athletic at any point, I mean, we definitely have people that are running now that were like, Oh, I didn't have any sports as a kid. And it's kind of like, this is maybe the one that was easiest to learn or as adults, it might be the easiest one to pick up just in general. But it's like, it was like a component of so many different sports. A lot of people were doing it, but they were doing it with as a means to an end versus the actual right. activity itself. Or in worst case scenarios, it was like punishment. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it got like ingrained in your head is this, I'm going to avoid that at all costs. Yep. That's, so, that's how I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a coach is going to make me run laps. Yep. So yeah. What got you interested in running in the first place? Uh, yeah. It's kind of similar to what you just described. I played sports growing up, um, baseball and hockey. Hockey is like my main sport. Uh, I think I was better at baseball, but for some reason I just liked hockey more. Um, and obviously there's no running in hockey. It's, you get that cardio aspect. It's like a very like power based kind of sport, like very gritty. It's like you go in these short bursts, mm -hmm. like the average shift during a hockey game is like 45 seconds. So it's, you know, like one or two laps around a track essentially as you just, or I guess that'd be about a lap. Um, and yeah, I, I loved hockey, but, uh, knew I wasn't going to be able to play it forever. 
and uh, I played for two years in uh, college at the University of Wyoming, just like club level. Mm -hmm. um, loved it, and then just realized that there's other things I should probably focus on and things that are gonna make me better. Uh, and so when we were, my girlfriend and I were uh, doing an exchange program in Hawaii, so we were living over there for about nine months, and I had heard of David Goggins yeah. on, uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast, and uh, thought this guy was just crazy. But I loved his approach to like the mental strength side of things. And for whatever reason, I was just like really interested in like exploring my mind, I guess, as, mm -hmm. as, for lack of a better term, um, at that point in my life. And I was like, man, I feel like running could be such a good tool to see what else I could do. Because I, I was done playing sports. I was in school. But I was like, I'm just going to the gym every day, kind of like lackluster, lifting weights, not really with any intention behind it. Um, so I want like more purpose behind this. And so started getting into running. I would literally go out and try and set a new mile PR every day. Mm -hmm. Cause I had the only baseline knowledge I had of running was I did the mile in seventh grade yeah. and I ran, I think it was seven twelve. And so now fast forward to college, I'm 19, 20 years old. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, as long as I can beat this seven twelve mile every day, I think I'll be doing good. And so yeah. I would just go out you know, seven minutes, 658. I slowly, I got it down to like maybe like 630 or something, which is crazy because my marathon time is faster than right, that. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, marathon pace. And uh, yeah, I did that for a while. And then I kept, I was listening to Goggins and try, trying to learn more about the whole running side of things. And I would hear people talk about like 100 milers and ultras. And I'm like, how are these people running for this far and like not getting burnt out? Because all I do was I was just running as hard as I could for a mile. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I think if I want to go farther, I'm going to have to slow down. And so I started running like eight, nine minute miles. And I was like, oh, this is a lot more boring, but I can go farther. Um, so that was the whole, basically first year of running. I don't think I ever broke a double digit run for maybe the second year of running. Uh, so just really eased into it from there. And then uh, my friend in Wyoming uh, asked me if I wanted to run this race. It was a 12 hour endurance challenge uh, in our hometown in Wyoming. And basically it started at 6.30 PM, went till 6.30 AM around this eight mile loop in the mountains and you just did as many loops as you could. And we were like, we could probably do like 50 miles in, in 12 hours, yeah. right? Like people do 124 hours, why not 50 and 12? Uh, so we went in, went in and did that. Uh, didn't train for it whatsoever. <laughs> I was doing like maybe 10 miles a week at the time. Uh -huh. So very undertrained. And I think I ended up doing 43 miles. Oh, nice. So not bad for not training. No kidding, that's um, a month's worth of training at right. that time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was like, Man, what could I do if I actually trained for this yeah. and you know, put in the right intentional kind of work? Uh, and that was back in 2020, so about three years ago now. And ever since then, I've gotten kind of obsessed with just learning more about the sport, learning how to fuel properly, how to pace properly, how to structure a workout, uh, how to structure a training plan and all that kind of stuff. And did a few half marathons in there, did a couple 5Ks, did my first marathon like 18 months ago, um, and I did my fifth marathon just two weeks ago. So I've, I'm just full in, yeah. all obsessed with it now. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I think that, yeah, I mean, you mentioned David Goggins. I think between David Goggins, Cam Haynes, and yeah. Nick Bear, like more non-traditional runners have yeah. come into the sport in the last few years because of those three guys. Yeah. And there's probably other, other ones too that are good examples. But it's just like, I look at those guys because it's like, running i mean it's like anything right it's like people look at him like oh well that's a runner or that's you know and i think running as a sport has tried to like break that stigma for the longest time where it's like you know you don't have to look like you know the guys standing on the olympic starting line right. to, to run like in fact you can go out and do that at any size or at any like 
ability level, essentially. It's just this activity that you can do, and obviously you can progress um, to a point where maybe you end up looking like one of those guys. But to a large degree, I think it was kind of just like like anything where like, you know, I, I, I guess if I looked at like um, in football, like in high school, you look around, it's like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to be great there unless maybe I'm good at like punting or right. like <laughs> cornerback or something yeah. like that. So it's like, you're, you, I think you get a lot of like, just like kind of same type of a, type of an attitude about it. But then when someone looks at someone like Goggins or Cam Haynes or Nick Bear, they're like, oh, those guys don't look like they'd be runners. They'll be doing something else. But here they are running, not just out jogging, but running right. like 240 mile races and things like that. So then people start wondering like, oh, well, maybe I could, surely I can do the 5K. Right. Or, and then that leads to the marathon. And then before you know it, they're signing up for a 200 miler. Yep, <laughs> that, that's exactly what hooked me in was like, especially somebody like Goggins, uh, just learning more about his story, how he was like a nobody, mm-hmm. not you know naturally super athletic or gifted by any means. Uh, but just like got obsessed with and stuck with it and like proved that through time and consistency and intentionality, you can like do a hundred mile race or a 240 mile race. And I think the cool thing with him or Nick or Cam Haynes is like, um, none of these guys are winning these races. It's like, they're not breaking records or doing anything, you know, like noteworthy outside of just finishing the race. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's really intriguing to me too, for the sport of running, because for like me playing team sports, it was always about winning. Like everything had to be winning. You got to win state this year. You got to mm-hmm. be the top leader on the team. All this stuff is much more competitive against other people. But the cool thing with running, I think that's why it probably attracts so many people too, is that it's like, it's you versus you going to war with your mind. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Is it's, <laughs> uh, it's never about like, can I beat this guy or can yeah. I, can I, maybe for you, it might be cause you're, you're winning the races and you're going for that. But for like an average Joe, like me, it's like, you don't have to be winning or being an elite person to actually like enjoy the sport. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. You can get a free sample pack of Element Electrolytes by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and 20% off your order of Delta G Ketones by going to deltagketones.com and entering promo code BITTER20. Well, I think the interesting thing about ultra running is it's sort of like kind of welds those worlds together to a degree. Cause like you said, yeah, there's the competitive side of the sport, but you can still have the biggest events in the sport and you're lined up with the, you know, everyone's lined up together. And there's always been this kind of weird thing. And you'll, you'll experience this when you do the, it's the Wyoming hundred mile you signed up for in October. Uh, Yeah. It's the Bighorn. Bighorn. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So like you'll have this, you have this experience where like you go a hundred miles and everything that you've there, there's this weird disconnect that you can have someone that's done a bunch of them tell you everything about it and there's an element that won't click until you actually do it yourself because you'll be able to pin everything they told you to actual experiences for right. yourself and then there's like this little thing in your mind that you know when you talk to someone else who's done it that they've experienced that too and you both kind of know like no one else will relate to this unless they do it too. So it's almost like this like club that you, right. that it doesn't matter if you're the last person across the finish line or the first person across the finish line. There's that camaraderie of knowing like, oh, I know what you went through. You know what I went through. Right. And it really doesn't matter who crossed the finish line first. Yeah, there's a real mutual respect mm-hmm. with running. And I think at least of all the communities I've been a part of, running is the most inclusive and encouraging of everybody. Um, and I think that's, again, one of the greatest things about it is like, you can be somebody like yourself, an elite runner, but you're still interested to hear my story of just some yeah. average guy. Uh, and it's so cool because, again, there's that mutual respect of like, I, I tell like athletes that I coach now too, is like, 
even though we're not running elite times or winning these races, like you're still putting your body through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not you're doing it in the same amount of time as this other person, like you're still doing the same thing, uh, like relatively speaking. And so I think that's always an important thing to note too, is like, I, I try to train and live like a professional athlete, even though I'm not a professional athlete, I'm not winning races or, you know, sponsored by these big companies that are paying me to go fast. It's just like, but I, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm, I'm just doing the same thing, but, mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. And you can, because it's right. like, you, you know, the, the barrier to entry is pretty low for the most part. I mean, there's yeah. obviously like expenses and you can, you can spend a ton of money on running if you want to, but like in terms of just like getting that experience we described, you can do that pretty easily in most cases. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Let, let's talk a little about your training for, for Chicago. I'm curious, uh, kind of how you prepared for that. Did you have like a timeline where you're like, okay, this day is the day I start preparing? Um, sort of, it was basically the day I finished the Bighorn 50 miler in June. Mm -hmm. Uh, cause that would be from June to October was, I guess about four months. Um, so as soon as I got recovered from that, uh, started getting right into marathon training. I think it was probably a week or two after. So it was a, it was a good, I think, 14-week block. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually, which I don't know if this helped or not. I mean, it, it worked, obviously. But I had, I think, three friends that I went and paced for for uh, ultra marathons. One of them was, was Pierce at Tahoe 200, one uh, for a friend in Leadville, uh, and then another friend at the Crazy Mountain Ultra in Montana. And so that was three or four weekends where I would miss my long training runs and substitute it with like 12 hours in the mountains, mm -hmm. just hiking and a little bit of running, but a lot of like power hiking and just spending a lot of time on my feet. And I, I feel like that helped a lot. Uh, obviously, that's not part of a traditional marathon training program to go spend 12 hours in the mountains on a Saturday. But I feel like that that probably helped from like a muscular endurance standpoint and just, I think mentally too, just shifting the perspective of like, okay, I, I just spent 12 hours hiking through yeah. the mountains. I can go knock out two hours and 45 minutes mentally. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so short compared to those things. Um, but yeah, from a physical standpoint, I think that probably helps. Uh, but yeah, I worked with a coach. His name's Will Nation. He's based here in Austin. Do you know him? At yeah, all? I've, I've, I've met Will, but I know who he is, I think. Yeah, he's crazy fast. I think he's like a 213 marathoner, like OTQ guy. Crazy fast, super knowledgeable. Um, but yeah, he put together the plan for me. It was uh, Monday. It was always about an hour to an hour 15 uh, easy run, zone two. Tuesday was typically a speed workout from like 10 to 13 miles generally. Uh, a lot of kind of alternate every week, like intervals, uh, like 1K, one-mile repeats, uh, and then mixing in like three, four, five-mile tempos. And then uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was all easy miles, just zone two training. And then Saturday, early on in the training, was a lot of just long, easy miles, uh, like anywhere from 14 to 18 miles generally. And then sprinkled in throughout that. Uh, and then as we got closer to the race was more of the like marathon pace workouts uh, on those Saturday long runs. So I think my my peak workout or the last three weeks leading into before the taper was, uh, it went like 22 or it went 20 miles, 22 miles, and then 20 miles mm -hmm. and then a two week taper. Um, and for me, I think those Saturday, like weekend long run workouts with like 20 miles at Mar or with marathon paces built in, those are for sure the biggest mm -hmm. needle movers for me like that. I've, that's where I really can tell the, the biggest difference in fitness and confidence too, I mm -hmm. think, cause there's, 
you know, not a lot of times in training, you actually get up to that 20 mile mark yeah. or, or further at marathon pace. So from a mental standpoint, those help a lot. And then obviously physically just getting used to turning your legs over 20 mm-hmm. miles into a workout at marathon pace, knowing they still work at that yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. And from a time perspective, you get pretty close to your actual goal time then. So it's, right. you're really kind of, it's a really good like dress rehearsal. And, and like you said, it convinces you. And you know, the, I, I bet the, the the longer days out there crewing and pacing were probably helpful mostly mentally i would imagine i i remember when i was still just doing 50 milers i hadn't done 100 miler yet but i'd done a few 50 milers so i kind of got used to the routine of that and i was starting to normalize kind of the experience of that duration of time and then i went on this bike trip where like uh we were biking i think for like three or four days and it was like one day was like 14 hours and none of it was hard. It was just like, we had a bunch of heavy gear and we were just barely moving. And it was just kind of like just an exercise in patience and normalizing being out there kind of trudging along on these bikes. So like, I remember when I did that 50 miler, then I I remember looking back thinking like that went by so much faster than any (laughs) of the other ones did. And the big difference was that bike trip thing was like maybe like, I think six weeks before. So it was still relatively fresh in my mind in terms of like, you know, how, fo- how, how long could I stay focused on a single task? So you do normalize stuff with that. And yeah, and you were out on some crazy courses. So there's probably just some, yeah, muscular strength going up Yeah, and down. I mean, some of those mountains are gnarly. <laughs> Specifically, I mean, Leadville's pretty intense with Hope Pass, but that crazy mountain one in Montana, I think this is the second or third year they, they've done mm-hmm. it. But it's a, so it's a relatively new course, but it was, it was gnarly. There's some, I mean, just like sheer faces you're hiking yeah. up and you're like, Oh my gosh, we got to hike up that thing. And it, it's just, it, requ- it requires so much patience. And that's why I'm just continuously reminded with this running stuff until I can hit, you know, my, my genetic plateau, wherever that might be. Um, I'm just reminded that it's, it's so much mental mm-hmm. training that has to go into it and so much mental patience. Cause it's like, again, during a marathon, it's that fight or flight response. It's like every second your mind's telling you to stop, stop, stop running. You just keep fighting that, and the more you do it, the more time you spend in that discomfort, the the better you can be at it. Mm-hmm. And so, just learning that as long as you put in the training and you you know you get those physical adaptations, like then it becomes such a mind game. Yeah, for sure. So you're you're thinking of adding one more race to the schedule this year? It sounds like. Yeah, I just signed up for uh, the Brazos Spin Hundred K. I had Pierce, Pierce, he's a terrible influence. Um, he's doing the hundred mile version and he's got a whole bunch of people. He's like talking into doing the hundred miles and I want to do the hundred miles, but, uh, for sentimental reasons, I'm saving that for Bighorn sure. to do my first hundred mile hundred miler there. So, uh, just doing the hundred K at Brazos from what I know, it's very flat, fast, super runnable. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you won it last year, right? Yeah. So that course is interesting. So like you were talking about before, weather is probably the biggest determinant of whether that is just like as fast as you're going to find or a little bit slower. So the course itself is just like, it's basically town lake, like hard packed dirt, like super flat. Like there's this one little spot where like it would to say it's even, I mean, you only notice it because everything else is so pancake flat Mm. and it's like maybe like 20 meters long. And it's like, you can kind of see the top of, you can see over it. So, <laughs> so it's really not even a hill. It just becomes like this joke essentially about like, Oh, that's the steepest climb on the course. <laughs> it's probably a good reprieve though, a little bit, right? Like, yeah. Some, some variation, different can be muscles helpful. for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just a spot to kind of like look forward to, or that stands out on the course yeah. a little bit. But yeah, I think, um, if it's, if it's like not 
bad weather, like here's, here's where you can run into issues with that course. If it rains a ton the days leading in, it can turn a lot muddier, in which case then you go from like, oh, I could wear like a pair of super shoes to I probably need something that's going to like shed the loose dirt here. And then you're just moving a lot slower. It's like hard okay. to go chase PRs and stuff in that. And then the other one is just the humidity. So like last year, it was such an interesting scenario. We had a three-day stretch where it was 80 degrees and humid one day, 70 degrees and humid. And when I say humid, it's like almost 100%. Oh and then there was like a storm that was going to blow through, blow out all the humidity, and it was 60 degrees and cool on one of the other three. So we're like, where's that three-day yeah. rotation going <laughs> to land? And it landed on the 70 and humid. So it was pretty rough humidity-wise. Um, so like you, you might get some humid weather. Uh, you could get rain and mud. But if it's not like that, it's a really fast course. So you kind of just got to be open to – this will either be something where I can like really chase a fast time yeah. or it's going to be something where I just need to kind of like challenge myself on the day because there's going to be some variables there that are going to slow things down a little bit. Uh, but generally speaking, like if you're feeling up to doing a race, I love moving from the marathon into something like a hundred K or even a hundred miler for that matter. Cause the way I like to look at like training for an ultra marathon is everything that you would do for a marathon or for any endurance event from a speed work standpoint is still important. It's just an order of operations thing. Right. So from you going into, uh, we can talk about your bighorn training if you want, but my guess is with that, you were probably doing a lot more low intensity volume leading into the race itself. And then you recover from that. You get into speed work fairly soon after that. Cause the marathon is going to be the kind of the, the next thing on the, on the schedule that's kind of how I would structure a training plan for a hundred K or hundred miles. There'd be a period of where we were just working on base and we're trying to just get you really, really fast at like everything underneath your aerobic threshold or like the point I like to measure is just below the aerobic threshold. How fast can we get you there? And then from there, we're going to drop a speed work development phase on it and try to pull that whole system up a little bit. And then with that, just like really high level of just overall fitness, then we drop the race day specific stuff on top of it. So like everything you do, that's at race day intensity is just going to feel relatively easier and you're going to be able to do probably more of it, higher quality amounts of it and really kind of work on that. So you're kind of like inadvertently did that whole first phase of the plan. And now you're just at this point where with the time left, you want to get as specific as you can to what you'll be doing for that hundred K. And the biggest question you probably want to ask yourself is like, what is the kind of the goal pace or intensity for that? So that you can kind of start kind of yeah. feeling out what that feels like in training. Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. I think, um, I mean, this is actually a good question for you to find like aerobic threshold. Do you, I know there's testing you can do like in a lab, obviously, mm-hmm. but would the heart rate probably be the next best thing? Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of different ways you can try to kind of calculate it. Like you can go like, you can go kind of 70 to 80% of your max heart rate can kind of ballpark it. Um, all oftentimes, if you know your lactate threshold, mm-hmm. Or you can do a field test to gauge that a little easier because it's not as long of a workout. You can go maybe 20, 30 beats per minute below that is another way to maybe gauge it. And then, uh, like you said, you can go to a lab and they'll tell you exactly where it is. Generally speaking, I like to try to like ballpark it with like the field test or a percentage of your max heart rate if you have that data. And then from there, stress test it in the field. So really what we're looking at with that is like once you get out there, the, the one way to do it is like start really slow and then gradually speed up and just kind of target either like breathing in your nose and out your mouth, like nasal breathe. And once you get to a point where that's not really feeling like you can really sustain that, that's probably the spot where you're getting pretty close Mm. to it. The other one is like, if we were to have this conversation like we are right now while we're running, if you'd have no problem having this conversation with me, 
you're below your aerobic threshold most yeah. likely versus like got to a point where like we're talking and when it's your turn to say something like uh, uh, you just barely get out yeah. like five or six words then we're, we're definitely in a moderate intensity for you and past that aerobic threshold so i like to ballpark it with heart rate then kind of like stress test it with some of those like those that talk test or that breathing test and then kind of start working around that to some degree and kind of go from there yeah that makes perfect sense i know um do you ever use like the maffetone method is that accurate you think you can roughly that's another one you could add to the ballpark figure the hard part with age adjusted heart rates is sometimes they're just like they can be pretty wildly wrong i mean any of those things can be wrong as well so what i like to think about is like the more of those things you have kind of like speaking to one another the better so like if all of those things are lining up then chances sense. are you're probably heading in the right direction. And then if we took you into the lab, it'd probably test. Oh yeah, we're right, right in there. Right. And it is a range to a degree too. So it's like a lot of it is like, like the, the real harm there is like, if, if we, if you thought for one reason or the other, that your aerobic threshold was of like a, a degree faster than it actually was, you're, you're in the moderate intensity at that point, which is, there's nothing wrong with moderate intensity training. It's just an opportunity cost thing where, right. It, you're going to get more volume in that lower. The way I look at it is a, if you look at easy, moderate, hard, there's value across that entire spectrum, but it's all opportunity costs and you want to make sure you're taking advantage of the right opportunities at the right time. So there's a time where, like, let's say you got your aerobic threshold and it may be in a really good spot right now based on your, your marathon training because your marathon pace is probably between your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold. Right. So that's another thing you could probably get pretty close with just using that data too. Um, but like generally speaking, like if you're, if, if we really want to improve your aerobic threshold and we're taking opportunities to practice that off the table by doing too much moderate or high intensity stuff, it's tough because you're trading in like usually multiple days of that for one or two of those higher quality sessions right. versus a scenario where, sense. yeah, if you're, if your aerobic threshold is at a point where it's like plateaued, and it's like, unless you add more volume, we need to change, we had to add another like, like uh, a stressor to like kind of move the needle on things. Then the opportunity cost to do a moderate or high intensity thing is really low because any input's gonna sustain that for the most part. Right. And then we can actually improve something else while maintaining that. So it's all kind of just like, where's the global fitness at? And then what are the inputs we need to do right now? And then there's a specificity thing too. So like right now, regardless of where that's at, you're probably doing lower intensity stuff now anyway, because that's just gonna happen to be what what the hundred K intensity will be. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, if it's, if you get great weather, uh, I mean, you could probably like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 to 90 seconds slower than your marathon pace. I wouldn't think would be like extremely aggressive. That's kind of what I was thinking. So Mm -hmm. marathon pace was six fifteen, And even like, if I go out for like an easy run, uh, mm-hmm. just by myself, it's typically like trying to stay using, you know, like math tone method or following heart rate. It's typically around like eight minutes a mile generally. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing the math. I was like, I think I could probably hold eight minutes a mile for a hundred K if mm-hmm. I, if I needed to, um, and My I was guess, about that, I was like, man, that's going to require a lot of patience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that, if, if the weather's nice and the course is dry, yeah. I would, I would say eight is probably a, a relatively conservative bet okay. based on your marathon PR. Uh, and I mean, I think, I think conservative is the way to go with uh, something like that because there's so much time to make up for it where like, if you get 50 K in and you're just like, let's say you come through 50 K and you're right on eight minute pace and you're just kind of still waiting to get started, then, uh, yeah, you're in a great spot and then you can start kind of walking it down if you want to. So, yeah, that's kind of the plan just because I've never done 
anything like this. I've, I've done one marathon where it was just strictly based off of feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's probably a little bit too fast there, but I've never done anything longer than like a 20 mile easy aerobic run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely new territory, but I'm very excited to test it out and see. The uh, other thing, and, I mean, you're the guy, you're the man for the job to, yeah. to help me do it. Here's what I think you should try doing. So the, the, the input that I think is, uh, I think generally speaking, the most important aspect is quality or the most volume you can tolerate at the highest quality at the intensity that you're focused on right now. So like there's a ton of different ways you could distribute that volume. You could, you could do 20 runs in a week, three a day, if you right. wanted to and distributing it at, at like, you know, in a way that it was like, just re- really like, that's an extreme obviously, or you could distribute it where you're doing like three days running, like really, really long. The risk to that obviously is like quality is likely going to have a harder time being sustained if you're just putting it all into one group. And then it's just like logistically kind of a nightmare to do it the other way. Right. Uh, so usually people are going to fall somewhere in between those two, like, like undoable extremes essentially. But that's like the way, the way I explain it is that that's probably one is maintaining quality at the highest amount of volume you can tolerate. Cause that's going to move the needle on performance the most. And then from there, I think it's uh, how do you actually distribute it in a way that works for your schedule? That's probably one of the biggest ones for most people is like we, you, most people have a schedule and they have non-negotiables that are, you can't, you can't avoid. So usually that comes in the, in the framework of two different things. How much time does that actually add up to in terms of availability? And then where are those available times? And then we start building from there. So with most people, it's going to be some sort of situation where it's probably not an even spread over the week because they're probably going to have like a weekend where maybe they can go out and do a long right. run or maybe two long runs, in which case we are going to probably skew some of that volume and work on race day specific stuff there. Um, for someone like yourself, the other advantage of that too would be, let's say we decided on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, three hours each, and just target that eight minute mile pace. You could probably just head down to Town Lake. That'd be a pretty similar right. course profile to to Brazos, and just kind of sense out how that feels on that second day. Like if you're get if you get to that end of that third that third hour on the on the second day, and you're still feeling like, all right, I mean, I could, I, I kind of feel like I should run a little faster than this. This is feeling like, you know, then, then I think it's a really realistic goal. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, wonder from a volume standpoint. So like for Chicago, I think my peak was around 65 miles Mm -hmm. with probably 20% of those miles being like high intensity, maybe 15% being high intensity. So I don't know, just say like 55 miles of the 65 were probably just aerobic Mm -hmm. runs. Uh, Do you think maybe bump that up to like 60, 70 miles a week? Uh, Like keep that same running volume as a whole, but just more time spent aerobically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the, the way I like to look at this is it's the, the biggest, cause all these inputs are just leading to your training load. So like when you're training for the marathon, the mileage you were doing had, you know, you had the low intensity inputs, but then you had a lot of moderate to higher intensity inputs too, that increased that training load. So you can do more volume if you remove some of that training load in the moderate to high right. intensity, which with your time frame between now and December, it's short enough where uh, I think you should probably like abstain from moderate to high intensity as much as possible Okay. in exchange for more mileage. That makes sense. Yeah. And just get really specific. Like you don't have to like remove it all together, but you could, th- you could do a super minimal input. Like if you want to do like an abbreviated short interval session, or you probably better off with like a lactate threshold type thing. So yeah. like, um, you know, more like a long interval, but you could do that intensity with short intervals if you wanted to, just to kind of keep that leg turnover there yeah. and kind of 
minimal input, sustain some of that fitness to some degree. Uh, but I think like, you know, the the big thing is probably convincing yourself that that eight is like an achievable goal. So you go in there positive as much as anything. That makes sense. Um, I don't necessarily love runs beyond three hours unless like they're, you're going to practice race day specific stuff. So sometimes the way I'll look at that is like, let's do like, let's do a couple longer runs. It wouldn't have to be back to back days either. I think you should maybe do that once or twice just to kind of get a feel for how you feel on that second day and get an idea of just like, oh yeah, I can, the perspective of knowing you can move a tired body is helpful because then you know that it's mental when you get that tired body at some point and you're like, can I do this? Can I not? You're like, oh yeah, that's right. On that Sunday morning, I did three (laughs) hours on tired legs. I know I can do this. I just got to fuel and hydrate and stay focused. So like, I like to think of that as like a good value add from the mental standpoint. And three hours isn't so long that we're like at a point where like the margin of diminishing returns have been met to the degree where like now you're just kind of out there like getting low quality for the input and then taking future training off the table in a large degree the way it would if I sent you out for like a six hour solo run, which case then you're probably taking the next day off. The day after that's probably going to be like really low quality, if not another day off. And then by the time you get around to wanting to run again, we'll probably have missed training to the degree where even if that six hours was done at the quality we were looking for, you could have done more than that in, a, in that time frame and got better cumulative volume at that goal intensity. So. Yeah, I, I incorporated a little bit more of those back-to-back sessions for my 50-miler for earlier this year, and that made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And again, with confidence, too, of just like <clears throat> knowing what it's like to run another three hours the mm-hmm. following day after you just did three hours yesterday. That's yeah. It's a huge confidence boost for sure. And it, um, I'm sure from a physical standpoint, obviously it teaches your body to recover faster and, and, uh, not break down so quickly. So this is very helpful. Well, and then practicing fueling too. <clears throat> yeah. Like, yeah. cause you might, we, we could talk about that. I actually listened to your podcast from, from Chicago. I think like, I mean, you were, you were super dialed. You got clearly practiced it yeah. and it obviously it worked great. I would say like, now, now 100K isn't that much further or longer in the sense that I think you would have to deviate too much. But since the intensity is a little lower, you might just want to, and if you have perspective from this with the 50 miler, I would say like trust that over anything I'm about to tell you. Right. But you might be able to do just a little less fuel and avoid potentially just feeling like you're kind of putting in a lot. Because like yeah. you probably felt fine in just under three hours, but if you start like going up, you you might feel like you're putting a lot down the hatch, yeah. so to speak. Hundred <laughs> um, percent. And it is when you're aerobic, uh, you're primarily fat burning, correct? Yeah. So like for for the if you don't cross your aerobic threshold, which you probably won't for the race, not in any meaningful way anyway. I mean, you could, I guess, but like you don't you won't spend a lot of time there. But you're looking at like at worst probably like a fifty fifty split from okay. fats and carbohydrates, okay. and that would be like someone on a moderate to moderate high carbohydrate diet. Um, so when you think about that, like the inputs you're going to need at that point uh, with like, you know, good glycogen stores heading into it, isn't going to probably be as much as it would need to be if you were, you know, running at a, an intensity where that's starting to skew really heavily towards carbohydrate. Right. And then in the marathon is like one of the more oxygen demanding events out there. So it's like one of those where there's just no way around it. Like right. you want to try to get in almost as much carbohydrate as you can get in right. and tolerate. So that was actually one thing from Chicago. I think I only got down. I think I mentioned this in that podcast. I think I only got down like three gels. My plan was to do a total of five throughout the race. So I missed two of them. Basically mm-hmm. I completely just spit one up cause it was, not, oh, really? it was not going <laughs> down. That was at like mile 
12, I want to say. And then uh, another one at like mile 18. So I, I, or actually, no, I got that one down. I tried to take another one at like 22 and I was just mad and threw the gel on the ground. <laughs> but uh, from my last gel was 18. So the last eight miles, basically the last, uh, what, 50 minutes, I didn't have any fuel uh, or no extra fuel, I suppose, which I, I guess, because uh, you get what, use your glycogen stores for about an hour to an hour and a half typically? Yeah, you'll, it'll depend. So the way to think about that is, you'll have a situation where once you start dipping below like 50%, that's when your body starts ratcheting up the perceived effort. And that's when you start noticing like, why does it feel so much harder to run this pace? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're, you're probably looking at like, if you're doing some fueling, you're probably looking at like closer to two hours before oh, okay. you start. Cause I mean, actually I thought you were eating more. I might've been, I might've been remembering that wrong. Cause if you were only doing, if you only did three gels over the course of the marathon, you, you probably, you might actually want to do a little bit more than that for the, <laughs> that was the goal. Yeah. yeah. So like, I mean, for the, even for the hundred K, um, just because like, well, first of all, like you're going to have a lot easier time doing it. Right. Cause it's the intensity so much lower. Yeah. It's just so much easier to get in fuel when you're running that slow versus yeah, trying I mean, to, yeah, it wasn't even in my stomach. It was just like my mouth. Like I it wasn't oh, really? cause I was breathing so hard and like my heart rate was so high that like, just the logistics of it. It was, I don't know what, it, I think it was a mental thing more than anything. Uh-huh. Um, cause I don't know. I think I just was sick of the Morton gels too. Maybe like yeah. I, I use them so much during training that I was like, oh, I gotta take another one of these things. I, it could have been that, but I don't you, know. You did drop a six Oh eight at the end though. So that's true. It's probably unlikely that you were too depleted at that point. That's so, true. Um, yeah, you, you did a really like thorough job of loading up before the race though. So you probably right. went in about as topped off as you could, you could get to, which just, right. you know, that's just, you know, that's just something you don't have to do during the race then as much of right. because you have it already there. Do you need for safer Brazos? Um, if I'm just saying I'm going to be hundred percent aerobic, would I need to carb load as intensely? Cause I was doing 600 grams per day for three days. Oh, it's a good question. Yeah. So I don't think it hurts to do that where you might want to deviate is the morning of, so the way to think about it is like you'll eat dinner the night before or whatever your last food is. Then you have this overnight fast essentially. So your body is going to increase its fat oxidation rates to some degree just from not eating for that period of time. So you wake up in the morning with like this like opportunity to kind of maintain that or mm. accelerate it a little bit more. So the way I like to think about it is when you get into the ultra stuff is – you can still eat the carbohydrates those days leading in if you're looking to kind of top off your liver and muscle glycogen. But then in the morning, I think you might want to stay away from too much carbohydrate there and just kind of keep those higher fat oxidation rates so that when you start the race, your body's encouraged to burn fat, even though you have those stock glycogen stores. And then if you wait a little bit into the race to start fueling, you'll have kind of ratcheted that stuff up a little bit more yet. And then you're just not going to fight as big of a, of a ratio of carbs to fats through for the remainder of that day. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I know that you're interviewing me technically. I would ask you a bunch of questions. Um, <laughs> that's totally fine. But, uh, do you, I talked to Mike McKnight about this and he tends to do gels or like the artificial, you know, like a drink mix or something mm-hmm. earlier on in the race and then progressively move towards like solid foods. What's your take on that? Yeah. So there's going to be, there's, I think there's some good starting points and there's going to be like a bunch of individual stuff. So like, I would say the number one thing for pretty much anyone to start with is think of like a combination of like fluids, gels, and solid foods. So you sort of have like a contrast there. 
then from there think about with hydrating and fueling nibbling and sipping mm-hmm. so the more you can do small amounts spread out the better from both a fluid and an intake standpoint so i think people run into more issues when they are taking in like large quantities at once and then they've got kind of this gut bomb of just like oh yeah. now my body's got to shunt a bunch of blood to the digestive tract to kind of process that when you're trying to also get oxygen to your muscles and if it's warm also cooling so it's like we have this finite resource and now you're asking me to do that too kind of type of a thing right. and the way to think about it is if you keep moving your body's not going to stop sending blood to your legs for the oxygen delivery your body's not going to stop cooling because you'd pass out if it did that it can shut down your digestive though so then if you do too much that's where people will get kind of an upper gi issue where it sort of just stops that process and everything just kind of sits in there so I would say like to some degree, like I like to go be a little more kind of like less polarizing where I'm doing all of one and then all of the other and yeah. just kind of go back and forth. Cause I think that also helps with palate fatigue too. So you guys said like you got sick of the Morton gel. Yeah. So what I'll, I'll, I'll notice that with long races, if I'm doing something like liquid and sweet flavored after a while, you're just like, ah, you know, right. so I'll have something like crunchy, salty, savory to kind of like cleanse the palate, so to speak. Or the extreme way to think about it, if, if you ever watched the man versus food stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so d- there's that one where he was doing like an ice cream sundae challenge and he was like tapping out and then he brought over like some crispy, salty French fries and he oh. ate some of those. All of a sudden, he like reset his like his uh, his appetite signals and he could start eating the ice cream again. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. so it's kind of like a, just kind of keeping yourself almost interested enough to yeah. continue the process. Um, you'll learn some stuff about you yourself too where there'll be points in the race where it's just like, it just feels better to like sip on some calories yeah. or I'm craving some salt or something crunchy. And then you just kind of want that. So you can definitely kind of lean into your intuitions a little bit during those points in time too. Yeah. It seems like it's, it's a good idea to have a baseline of something to, to try and go off of. And then from there, personalize it to whatever mm-hmm. for you, for whatever you need. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Though. What I do remember listening to, and this is maybe what I was thinking about versus the race itself was during your training sessions, you were doing a really good job of fueling during them. It seemed like, yeah. Yeah. I tried to simulate race day as much as I can, mm-hmm. like wake up, uh, around the same time I'll be getting up on race morning, try and start the run. If I can around the same time that the race would start, just to get like used to eating those foods early in mm-hmm. the morning. Like, usually it's really hard to get solid food and stuff like that down in the morning. Um, so getting used to that and then just going through the motions and um, making sure I have a good solid plan going into the race. Just cause I, again, my very first marathon, I, I didn't do any of that. I just yeah. was like buying gels the week of the race. I was like, Oh, this should be fine. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So I think that helps me a lot of just, <clears throat> again, from a mental standpoint of getting everything getting all the ducks in a row Mm -hmm. during training and dialing that in and just simulating race day as much as possible and then uh yeah i I like to experiment with a lot of things as much as i can too throughout training like i for some of the long runs i would just do liquid calories before the run and then the next week i would just do solid calories Mm -hmm. and then figure out different ways like how my body would react to that or what was easier to get down if i'd noticed any differences during training and then you know over a 14-week period i was able to slowly through process of elimination get rid of things that I didn't like and just lock in on those ones that seem to work every time I use them. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that seemed to help quite a bit for me too. Yeah. I would definitely lean on that. Yeah. So you've sort of done like usually during when I get to the, like the long run development phase of a training for an ultra marathon, I'll start kind of bringing more food into the workouts and stuff. And I'll be just exactly what you said, practicing yeah. what I want to do on race day and try to figure out like, all right, let's reconfirm what, was going to work from this time from the last time just make sure everything is still like 
like humming, humming along the way I expect it to. And then, you know, sometimes it's just like, I'm going to try something a little different. So a lot of times my solid food thing will range from one race to the next. So I'll just, I'll get interested in one thing or the other for, for a specific race. And then I'll just kind of put that input in there during those long runs. So I'm practicing, but it sounds like you've been doing that and that'll just be something you might want to play. Although depending on, I mean, I know you did some long runs at gold with gold marathon pace in there too, but if you did just some like non-marathon paced long runs, that might be a pretty good perspective from a relatively close intensity, kind of how those products are going to sit in your stomach for something like Brazos. Or if they sat well during that, it was probably a little faster yet. So then they'll be at least in the beginning, pretty rock solid, I would imagine. Yeah. And I've, I've over the years started to get better at doing solid foods. When I, when I first started getting into running and I would try and incorporate solid foods, it it like would not happen. And then over time I've, become more acclimated to getting solid foods in and I, I feel like it gives me more energy to it that mm-hmm. means probably more calories obviously so uh if i can get in solid foods it seems like a big help i haven't spent probably enough time figuring out exactly what solid foods are the best i mean outside of like aid station quesadillas or something mm-hmm. like that yeah, yeah. Uh, those usually sit pretty good but yeah i've, I've liked incorporating a little bit more of that and so for browsers i don't know what the aid stations are like there but i'm sure they have a lot of that they've got a ton of stuff yeah yeah Yeah, that's actually a good point because one thing i'll sometimes do when there's a race when the race has been determined and you're starting to think about this stuff is actually look and see what they have on their aid station web on the website because if there's stuff there that it's like i'm just gonna if if you're kind of like indifferent it's just like i've got a lot of options i could try and i'm not really feeling too compelled to pick one over the other you may as well pick stuff they have on the aid station table because then you know it's logistically you're gonna have access to it the whole time does that course i I think this is the first year they've done the 100k i think so yeah but do you know it's a looped course i think right Mm -hmm. you do several loops yeah so it is what is it it's like 16 and two-third miles or something like that so you'd probably do four four of them about okay or maybe it's yeah i think it's six Maybe it's just shade over 16 or something like that. Is it kind of a similar setup to like Rocky Raccoon? Yeah, it's a lot like that. Okay, so there's like mm-hmm. one kind of main hub people can yep. hang out in and mm-hmm. then aid stations throughout. Yeah, and the aid stations are really easy to get to too. Nice. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I'm, uh, I'm super excited. This is like, I've only done a couple ultras and those are very different from this, much more mountainous. Uh, so it took a lot longer and a lot more hiking, I think. But mm-hmm. this I'm excited because it's, it's just so new to me. I've never done a race it's where a different I, where I can style. run the whole thing yeah. and it's this long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where it goes by faster because you're moving quicker. Yeah. But then you are kind of just hitting that same mechanic over and over again. So, like, that is something where it's like, and that's where the kind of the back to back long run will be helpful just to kind of feel like, how does my body actually feel moving at this pace when there's, when it's kind of been getting yeah. hit by that same kind of pace and mechanic for a bit? Do you wear, uh, did you wear super shoes when you did yours last year? I did. I wore the ultra vanish carbon. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I want to try and figure out so I can spend as much time training in that type of shoe. Uh, I don't don't know if I'd wear carbon shoes for a lot of long runs, but at least have an idea for what I'll wear. Cause I guess, like you said, it could be a game time decision based on the, the, what the course conditions are. Yeah. Yeah. If it's dry, then I think you're probably fine with yeah. a super shoe and that probably would be a preferable one. So. Yeah. Cause I had a, uh, again, Pierce, he ran it last year and he said, uh, I think he wore the Hoka speed goats. Cause I asked him, I was like, are you, are you going to wear road shoes for this? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I wore the speed goats last year. Cause there's like one Rocky section. But I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm his, I'm curious what your take is on this Rocky section yeah. he speaks about. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I would say like on a course like that, 
like, and for most courses, actually, whatever shoe's the most comfortable on your foot right. is probably going to be the, the move just because yeah. you're out there for longer. Yeah. So you want something that's going to feel pretty natural on your foot. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then did you just do like a handheld bottle and swap it out like with another one or how did you go about that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I had handhelds pretty much the whole way. And the way it's set up is you have like the start finish area. But like the other aid stations are just like a mile drive away. It's kind of like okay. it's kind of like a it's not like a loop. It's it's just like this weird kind of like small loops that all kind of like mm. mesh together, so to speak. And there's one kind of a little bit longer out and back too. Okay. So like you can um you can get access to bottles, and the aid stations aren't that far apart either. So your best bet probably even if like you're totally uncrewed, you could probably be better. You you just find probably carrying a handheld and just filling up at each. Yeah. Did you do it alone last year? Like, or was Nicole out there? With she you? was out there. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually probably gonna be out there this year. So oh, nice. yeah, I've got a couple of coaching clients that are racing it this year. So I can throw some bottles at you. Yeah, I might need it. I, I'm gonna try and talk <laughs> Brie into going over there with me. But cool. We'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so excited to try all these logistics out because it's, it's all so new. And again, that's the cool thing with running is like you can run a fast marathon or you can do a hundred miler through the mountains or you can do a fast ultra. There's just so, so many, many options, so many things to learn and each race requires different preparation, which is awesome. There's another question I was going to ask you about the race. Uh, you did it. It was like 13 hours last year, I think I saw. Yeah. Well, what was it? Yeah, 13 something. I think 13.50 maybe. Something okay. around there. What pace did that come out to be? It's like seven something? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah. Actually, is it? I think it might be. Or is it? Yeah. yeah uh, it might be low eight. I think it might be low eight. I'd have to do, I'd have to How was that? Out the pacing calculator. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's almost a minute slower than, like, your world record. So my fastest 100 mile was 6.48. And that was on a track, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I blew up pretty bad at the end of Brazos. Like, I left, <laughs> like, if you look at my splits, like, I probably gave back. I mean, I had some, I had some like, pretty rough miles at the end there, like 10-minute pace type stuff there that really ate up on the average pace. I think I was probably moving between 7 and 7.30 pace for a huge chunk of the race. Yeah. And then just didn't quite have a good strong finish there. So um, that skewed it a little bit, but. How big of a difference do you think it made from like doing that 100 miles on a track compared to, I mean, I don't know what your relative fitness was at the time, but comparing like 100 miles on a track like that to something like Brazos. Yeah. um, So I guess the way I would say it, if I had had my Pettit Center Fitness at Brazos last year and then the weather was the same, I'm probably looking at something closer to like low 12, okay. somewhere in there, that neighborhood. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was like, it was pretty humid. So that was a little bit of a hit. Um, but it was still 70 degrees. So it wasn't like the worst you could get, especially after like the summer we had this year. Right. Uh, I'd like to, th- I, I, I'd be shocked if I was, I'd be more than an hour slower than the Pettit center, even with that, that weather, yeah. given the, how dry the course was, had I been in that same kind of fitness state. So, yeah. so it's still a very fast, course. it's very fast. Yeah. yeah. If you, in, in terms of like, I mean, cause technically it's a trail. Um, you can have a debate about whether <laughs> where we should draw the line with trail and stuff like yeah. that. But, um, it's technically a trail, but between that one, when weather's good there, it's about as fast as you're going to find tunnel Hill is probably the fastest. Where's that one? At? That one's in Illinois, Vienna. Okay. Um, I ran 12 away at tunnel Hill. Um, that's another one I want to do again at some point. Cause I think that's closer to 11 and a half hour course. It's just wow. weather's almost always perfect. 
and it's just straight out and backs, two straight out and backs basically. There's a oh small little hill, but it's on a rails to trails bed. So like yeah. it's like maybe a two or 3% incline and it's only for a couple of miles. And then you come down it to oh, finish. Yeah. So it's like, Dang. if you pace it right, you have like this little bit of gravity assist there too. But that uh, that video you posted the other day of you chafing. That was Brazos. But I was yeah. gonna say, was that, that Brazos? Was partially responsible for some of those 10 minute <laughs> miles at the end. That yeah. video, I, I was like <laughs> laughing at your pain and like because i've been there before yeah i'm like that it's such an uncomfortable feeling no it's the worst <laughs> yeah so if it gets humid like that that is worth knowing it's yeah. just like having um reapplying is the move because like i've got a good setup for like anti-chafing stuff like in terms of what i do that works well but i wasn't i wasn't i didn't calibrate it well enough yeah. for the humid for that duration of time I kind of had like my same protocols I used in the dry weather and it was just wasn't up for the task yeah. <laughs> and the humidity you just lose a lot of that stuff quicker. Dude, that is, that's gotta be one of the worst things is you have everything is going great in your race and then chafing comes up. It's yeah. Like, of all things, that, uh -huh. that's what's going to slow me down. <laughs> and you're sweating. So then you do try right. to do any sort of topical cooling and it just rinses it over and yep. it's like, yeah, you, you pay for that mistake over and over again. Do you tend to chafe more in the, when it's humid or when yeah. it's, okay. Mm -hmm. is there, I hardly chafe at all when it's dry. What is the, is it, do you know the reasoning behind that? Yeah, I think so, I'm the same way. It makes yeah, sense. it's just the the wet skin rubbing is gonna create oh, it's, more. It's more like catch to it. I yeah, guess, more friction. And the other thing too is like when you have any sort of blistering or chafing, usually it's a combination of heat, yeah. moisture, and friction. Yeah. So if you can control one of those, then you really minimize the potential for that to become an issue. So if it's dry out, then you're just not gonna get that moisture the same way. Right. Uh, you might get friction. Uh, you're going to get heat. Heat's the hard part. There's really no way around it. Like, yeah. especially if it's like on your feet, because then you're in shoes too. So then moisture control can be something that is worth trying to, to play around with if you can. Um, Will you swap socks and shoes and stuff like that during a race or, or typically no? I usually don't, but I always have the option there. Yeah. So that's what I usually tell people is I wouldn't plan on doing it just for the sake of doing it, but have it there. So like if you decide, right. and you might have a situation like, Here's here's way where I'd maybe plan it. If there's a race where it, you know you're going to get really wet and then thereafter it's going to be relatively dry, that's a great time to switch because now yeah. it's like you're going to be able to benefit from that versus a day where it's like muddy, wet the whole time. Then it's like you change into this new pair of shoes and yeah. <laughs> you're just back to the same thing. And that's like, literally a bighorn in yeah. a nutshell. My first year I did it, my feet, I think I had just fallen trench foot basically. Mm -hmm. Whole bottoms of my feet were like pruny and like the skin yeah. was peeling <laughs> off. It was like one giant blister. Cause there's so many Creek crossings and it's muddy oh, and yeah. it's the whole course is like that. And so mm -hmm. I, I swapped shoes and socks. It was probably too late, but again, it was like that same like catch 22 or, or mm -hmm. like the same predicament is like, well, I could change my socks and shoes, but they're going to be wet in five minutes again anyway. So mm -hmm. it's like, how do you know how you'd prepare for that? Or yeah. if you can prepare in any way for, for mud and wet feet for hours and hours. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of technology out there. There's a company called dry max socks. Mm. Um, I can give you a pair if you want. Uh, they have this this tech this technology where they do they actually do two things in some of their higher model socks they actually have like this Teflon coating on the inside so it helps with the friction and then they also have this fabric where um, the the inside pulls moisture or yeah and the outside repels no it's the other way the out, inside repels moisture and the inside like attracts it so it's basically uh, pulling the moisture off your foot that makes sense yeah so your feet stay a little more dry so they're trying to they're looking at it through that kind of that three-prong thing where it's like we've got heat we've got friction we got moisture that's when the trouble occurs yeah. so they're trying to remove the moisture as much as they can 
And then with the Teflon stuff, I'll like a little bit of the, the rubbing if they can. That and makes sense. I've had a lot of luck with that with that product for, for, for toe-related stuff anyway. Right. What um, was the name of those ones? Drymax socks. Drymax. Mm-hmm. I've, I started using these ones for trail running and ultra stuff. Uh, they're called Exo Skin or Exo oh, yeah. Toes. Have you heard mm-hmm. of them? Yeah, someone told me I should use those. So my chafing was all like mid-section chafing. Um, and like, yeah, they make shorts too. Yeah, so someone told me you should check those out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't check anything out at this point. Yeah. <laughs> the... Uh, the toes socks are great. Um, obviously, it helps from like your toes rubbing together and stuff. But I think in Gingy, I think they make the toe socks. Yeah, well, probably more than one model now. They were yeah. always the ones that had it originally. I yeah, think. them and then uh, Exoskin. They they're wool socks. Oh, they um, have them too. Okay, and they're they're the toe socks too. But those are great. Um, I think they're. I don't know if wool has that same kind of drying aspect to it or what it is, but there's something with it preventing blisters or chafing. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it might. I know wool is good for like staying warm when you're wet. Right. So you probably won't have to deal with that at Brazos, but it could be useful at yeah. a different race. If <laughs> yeah. you go through the night at some of these and you're wet, it's like, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that the heat training from this summer will kind of carry. I don't know how long that actually lasts for me. I don't know if it'll last for another six weeks or not, but I mean, try and get out in the heat as much as I can over the next six weeks. Yeah, and- it tapers off quick, but it's super easy to maintain. Mm-hmm. So, all the, the only input you really need is, and this could be like outside of the summer, you could get this, let's say it was winter and you're training for a, a hot race. Really all you need is about like two to three weeks, 20 minutes, three times a week in a oh, sauna really? after a workout. If you don't after work, you already have your core temp up a little yeah. bit. So it goes from like 30 minutes to 20 minutes. Interesting. So what a good protocol is like essentially this time out, like just hit the sauna for 20 minutes, three times a week if you can and after a workout and then you'll maintain all of it do you have a sauna here no mm-mm. dude i gotta get one i have a cold plunge yeah oh, i, got, do you? I nice. gotta get the sauna though that's like the next yeah the next key i've been to going to on it for oh, yeah. for workouts so they they just redid their inside so they have like oh, a nice. new sauna and a new cold plunge setup so i was waiting for theirs. them to get a uh, cold plunge in there because I haven't been to the, the new setup they have. Yeah, but. it's pretty sweet in there now. Nice. Yeah, they've I got go check it out. three cold plunges. And I can't remember. That sauna might have already been there. I can't remember. I hadn't used it because it was like during the summer. I joined at the beginning right. of the summer. So, like, I was just, like, not even going to be – I was not interested at all in getting yeah. a sauna. <laughs> it's yeah. like I got plenty of this right now Yeah, going out. Yeah, now, I, now that it's cooling off, I definitely want to get something. I don't know. I just I need more space for it. They take up so much space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But those big barrel ones are pretty cool now. And I think like Plunge, the brand came out with their own version too. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, it'll be fun to see what you do at uh, Brazos. I'm excited for it. Everything coming up, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, hopefully, I provided some sort of value to somebody yeah. out there. No, yeah. No, I'm going to do a whole bunch of episodes with people who are getting into running for. Running and ultra running, I guess probably a little more of a skew towards that since that's what I like to do the most of. But uh, it's just there's so many new people in the sport and from just such a wide range of stuff. I would have never expected to see the the range of different people getting interested in it. So it's going to be fun to chat with everyone and kind of figure out what's drawn you guys all to this. (laughs) I mean, you've been in it for how long have you like – I know you ran in college and stuff, but how long have you been running? 2010 uh, was my first ultra. Okay. Yeah, so so you've been in it. Because I mean, the first ultra, I guess, technically was like the 80s, but it didn't become mainstream till yeah. probably when you started getting into it, right? So actually, the ultra running goes back even further. Like trail running is relatively new, but the you had they had ultra marathons in the 1800s. Whoa! Yeah, I didn't the, know that. You, they used to sell at Madison Square Garden. What? They do this thing called pedestrianism, 
where they would be betting on people. And you know what? It, it got really popular. What? And then the bicycle, I think if I remember this, the bicycle killed it because they started oh. switching to that instead. But it was just like people that are left out there like betting on these people. I guess it was probably all sorts of prop bets and then also like just weird duration type stuff. But yeah, they have, uh, I mean, the record keeping was terrible. So like, right. I'm not sure when the first like official record started getting taken. But have I never heard of this? It's like, yeah, what, it's wild. Like Kentucky Derby for people. Yeah. basically. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. That's well, crazy. that's what some people are saying is like, if we want ultra running to really get to the next level, he introduced betting and then yeah. it'll get, it'll blow <laughs> yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it seems like it's growing like crazy though. It's, it's it so is, cool yeah. to see. And people, you know, mm-hmm. like campaigns and Goggins and stuff like they're just blowing up the sport, mm-hmm. which I don't, you might have a different take, but it seems like a good thing getting more people out, oh, I love it. active yeah. and mm-hmm. um, more money and more attention to the sport, more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The way I see it is like, it's going to grow fast one way or the other. So like any inputs that accelerate that, it's just yeah. like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think, uh, I mean, Leadville now, I mean, have you been there in the last couple of years? I haven't. No. It's, it's like one of these big, it's like the Boston Marathon yeah. of, of mm-hmm. hundreds. It's like, it's so commercialized and like hyped mm-hmm. up which is cool but it seems so different from something what i imagine brazos bend is probably going to be like or it's more traditional at brazos right. yeah yeah the and i'll be curious to see how that actually plays out because right now the big commercialization push is around ultra trail mount blanc or utmb yeah. so iron man triathlon bought utmb a couple of years ago so they've been kind of standardizing commercializing and buying up a ton of old, old like, like popular races essentially so now they have like this this ecosystem that's hard to operate outside of because you have to like they call them stones. You have to collect a certain number of stones right. to get into the the big one, the UTMB races. So, I mean, that's a polarizing topic in ultra running. People are like they love it and hate it, or love or hate it. I guess my take is like let them do that three ring circus, yeah. <laughs> and then if there's demand for the mom and pop type events, then it's super expensive to do the UTMB, to do like two or three races just to get in and then go over to Chaminade and race it. I mean, we're talking about like you could spend ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 easily to do like, oh my gosh. yeah, to do like a races to get in and then to do that, that weekend itself. So there's going to be a, there's going to be more people that want to do the sport that yeah. that's just going to be a price tag. They're not going to, they're not going to bite on. So that just incentivizes these more, these smaller races like Brazos um, or like, Oh, the race I'm going to Havelina 100 is a huge event. The Aeroviper are running, they're a big organization now. They have like yeah. 50 some events, but they've maintained a lot of the culture and a lot of the yeah. kind of like fit of fit and feel of what you'd expect from an ultra marathon. So you see that too. You see the there's definitely a, an appeal for that side of the sport still, and right. I think we'll see that continue to grow as well, uh, just kind of alongside. So UTMB might be the first thing that someone sees. But then when they get around looking about how do I actually participate in that, they might say, oh, but there's also this 50-miler an hour and a half from my house. Maybe I'll check that one out first before I start thinking about UTMB. Yeah, Aravipa is doing some cool stuff. Uh, I did one of the races in Colorado earlier this year. It was mm-hmm. a 50K, but definitely like for being a brand and a company that's putting yeah. all these things together and they're bringing more media to it, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still has that very like mom and pop. Yeah, to it, which is cool. I saw they just did a piece on you for uh, it was like an interview with Jamil, right? Yeah, yeah. The the media side, which is almost its own entity now, is yeah. uh, really they actually go to other races now too and put on like live streams and things yeah, like that's that. Right. So, yeah, just wait till the drones get really efficient <laughs> yeah. and the Starlink gets good enough where you can right. actually report from the entire course. Because sometimes that's the hard part is like there's there's people who are willing to go out there and like bring you the content, but yeah. 
it's like, oh, they have no signal out here. <laughs> yeah, the Starlink, that was uh, all the races I crewed at this year. They were all using Starlink out in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, mm-hmm. you guys have internet out here? It's, it's yeah. crazy. So, I mean, again, it's cool just bringing more attention to the sport and hopefully mm-hmm. getting more people into it, which is cool. Yeah, it's crazy. So you're at a good point to, to take yeah. it all in. <laughs> Do you uh, Have you done, besides Western states, have you done any mountainous ultras? Yeah, so I've done Western a couple times. I did San Diego 100. Oh, that's right. Um, what other one? That, that, for 100 milers, that's basically it. I haven't done a ton of crazy mountain 100 milers. Do you but... have any desire to do more of those? Or do you want to keep doing the, the yeah. flat and fast stuff? Uh, I want to do more mountain stuff. I would say, like, generally speaking, I like to keep trail in the rotation. I haven't typically left it there as something where I'll peak for 100 milers a ton um, outside of Western and, and uh, San Diego. But if I do well at Javelina, I'll take my spot at Western and yeah. make that my, my main race for the first half of the year. Um, I do think I'm going to probably get in a little more because some of the mountain races or a little bit past. I like the running aspect of ultra so much going much more extreme than, than Western isn't always as intriguing to me. Cause then you get so much more of a hiking component right. into it, but that could change to be honest. Like, the super shoe stuff has made it more intriguing to me because it's been somewhat protected from that. And right. I'm not so much of a, like an anti super shoe person that I would be like, all right, I'm done with runnable stuff yeah. anymore. But, um, <laughs> uh, to some degree it's like, if I had had my, my way, I think they would have, they should have regulated that stuff more, but you know, Interesting. even for like marathons or, or yeah. ultras or, mm-hmm. I, I've got a theory. I think if any brand other than Nike had come out with that technology, it would have got just regulated out of existence. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. But Nike's just too big. To... Too big, and they kind of own the sport yeah. where it's like they basically bankroll the Olympics. And like, Yeah, so it's like once once they had the product, it was like to some degree it was going to probably exist. Yeah. Versus like, I mean, you have all the – we have precedent with other sports. Like cycling obviously has allowed quite a bit of tech to come into the sport. They, I mean – to, to a degree, the sport is based on tech. So there's that. And then uh, swimming, though, went the opposite direction. They had those speed suits that they had for a while, and then they eventually said, no, this is too much of, a, too much of an advantage. So they cut them out. And running seemed – I mean, I think there's good arguments for the super shoes where it's just kind of a continuation. My biggest gripe with them isn't the actual improvement of tech because, I mean, the records are going to get broken anyway. So it's like why not just kind of speed it up a little yeah. bit? My biggest issue with them is like, and this could get solved over time, but there's such a range from one person to the next. I think it's like when they came up with the first 4%, it was like an average of 2 to 8%. So it's like if you're the unfortunate person yeah. who is 2% <laughs> versus 8 like, I mean, that's the difference between you could be a gold medalist at the Olympics and also falling off the podium at yeah. that point. So it's like I understand that like you know, the argument will be like, well, we have sh- like – why don't we go to barefoot? Then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the hard thing. Is like, yeah. where, where would you draw the line? Maybe like right. no carbon plates or. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think the carbon plates are really the big mover. Those, I think it's the foam. Really? I know they have the stack height limit. It's mm-hmm. 40 millimeters, I yep. think. Yeah. But just, yeah. Is there a certain, I don't know what like ingredient in the foam that like makes it or a certain compound? Yeah. Or so what it is, is it's the, the first, I mean, there's different, there's different types of this now, now that other brands have gotten into the mix, but the first was that Peebok foam that, Nike came up with. And essentially what happened was before that, from a performance standpoint, you wanted as little as you could get away with. And the, really the, the barrier to entry there was getting your feet to a degree where you could tolerate that. So you're like a 26 mile, 26 miles with these guys running sub five minute pace. That's a 
beating on your feet. So it's like to do that with a minimalist shoe or super low profile racing flat was a hard sell. But you know, you could strengthen your feet and kind of do it, but like no one was going to wear a max cushion shoe at the front of a race. That foam, what it did is it, it's, it, it, the, the way it returns energy is efficient enough where it's actually better than like the racing flats that people were mm -hmm. using for the marathon and, and more cushioned. So you sort of had like the benefits of cushion where it was easy on your feet, but performing better. So this is like, like the, one of the arguments that you'll hear people say is the marathon went from this kind of race of attrition, whereas like everyone goes out at this kind of this pace that's kind of on the line and then who's going to survive. Now it's kind of like who's going to accelerate through because their right. legs have been a little more preserved and it, it's turned a little bit more into like kind of like a 10 K type of a field than it maybe had been in the past. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. I think it is probably something where, the foam, I'm, I'm glad they put some regulation because before it was like the, the shoe that they were going to use, they actually, I think they actually used it for the Kipchoge sub two hour, like, um, expedition yeah, race. Right. I believe that one was 52 millimeters. And I think they had like two Jeez. or three carbon plates in there. Oh my gosh. So it was like a spring loaded. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So I, oh I'm glad they gosh. didn't just let it go completely like right. off the, off the charts with that. Um, but yeah, so my biggest, <laughs> I guess my thought is like, I understand like technology is going to play a role to some degree, but, and, and then there's going to be variance from one person. Cause you could also make the argument like, well, Kipchoge was born with these, these, like these attributes that other people don't have. And so to some degree, it's like, there's all these different things that right. you're, you're, you're getting. So if someone can not, if someone just responds better to the super shoes, then that's just their benefit. Right. So like, I, I get that argument too. Um, my thought would be like, minimize the the ones you can so that the ones that you can't help don't all add up to like this like extreme thing but i might just be too old <laughs> <laughs> no i mean there's a good point to it um i mean i think about that like playing hockey growing up like the sticks now are like are all, they're all car carbon fiber so they're incredibly oh, light yeah. mm -hmm. but like 30 years ago they were all wood they were yeah. like four times as heavy yeah and it's like <laughs> same with the skates like the skates were I don't know, made out of like old steel and like these yeah. leather boots and basically, and it's like now they're super lightweight and all this stuff. So it's like, I think sports when there, when there's technology involved, it's just like, that's what humans yeah. do is they evolve everything. And, um, I don't know. They just keep innovating and making things better, more efficient for us. So I don't know. It's hard. Like, I don't know where you would draw the line at exactly. Yeah. And at this point, it's one of those things where I try not to complain too much about it. Cause it's just like, it's not going to change. Like right. there's no, they're not going to go back and I mean, I guess they could. The swimming did. And, you know, yeah. when you said skates, that reminded me. Do you remember that you might be a little too young to remember this, but they had those clap skates back in the day. Clap there was like skates. one Olympic Games where the speed skaters, they had these skates where the heel detached. Oh, so I, I, can't, I can't remember how the, the physics worked with this, but I think it was something to the degree where like when they kind of lunged forward into their, into their, mm -hmm. like, their pattern of their speed skating, the blade stayed more like it was something with like the contact of the ice. It made it more efficient. Interesting. And they, they, they stopped, they don't let them use those anymore, I guess now. Hmm. I don't think they do anyway. Yeah. I don't know. I never heard of that. Yeah. It was, I think it was just one Olympic games had them. Yeah. And then they, after that, they put a rule in place that, yeah, that's again, that's, I feel like that's the hard part with any sport that involves any kind of technology, mm -hmm. like swimming. That makes sense. Cause it's like, I don't know how much technology you could add. It's like buoyancy is the big right. one. I guess one. that makes sense. Um, and running, 
I feel like it, it all come down to the shoes. I don't know what else you could add potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I EPO. Know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. I heard the, one of the better arguments I heard with the super shoes was like someone said, "Well, all the like at least we're going to clear out all the EPO records." Yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. How many? Do, I don't know. If this could be controversial, I guess. Like, do they test uh, these all these top people for like uh, growth hormones or like, in ultra running? Yeah, like uh, performance enhancement stuff. Yeah, that's a big topic right now because it's very un unregulated we have some testing it like i've been tested after like all my records and stuff like that but that's about the extent of it who Uh, would who come to test you it's uh wada okay Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. what is that i don't know a world athletic or world anti-doping agency oh okay okay. it's there they run it through uh u.s u.s track and field essentially so like if i if i would go to um so the Petit center when i broke the world record for the 100 miles in, in 12 hours they had a, a testing agent, a USATF testing agent on call for that in case a record got broken during that event. So then afterwards, I had to go and do all the testing stuff. So, I mean, there's some Western states tests now, too. That's like one of the big, bigger trail races. There was this system called the Quartz system, which was basically a joke, I guess. Like, I didn't really like it was more kind of over in Europe and for the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, but there was a bunch of issues with it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that needs to get more standardized to yeah. be on par because the reality is like w- when someone gets caught after a competition, my first guess is they, they made a mistake versus they were cheating because that's just something that you like, like if, if, if someone were to like, if with these guys who are inevitably people are cheating right now, they're doing it during their training right. and they're doing it away mm-hmm. from when they're going to likely try to get tested. So yeah. the only way to really control for that is random out of competition testing. So like if someone decided, Hey, I'm going to start cheating for this like six to eight week period of time. And then I'm going to taper off of it before my event. So I don't test positive. Well, someone could show up at your door and test you and you wouldn't know. And then you get, and that's how these people get caught. Right. And that makes sense. yeah. So, and then it's like kind of a cat and mouse game of like, finding something that isn't detectable or they're not testing for yet versus finding out what it is. So now they have like biological passport stuff where they have your, so this is why you've probably seen some of this where they'll have someone like, Oh, they just discovered that so-and-so is doping in the 2012 Olympics. Yeah. So this is stuff where they're the technology for testing things is gotten caught up where now they're going back and they're testing samples that they were. So you do have this thing now where like, even if you think, all right, I'm ahead of the, I'm ahead of the system. Well, you might be for now, but in right. four years you won't be. And then they're going to ping you. So like enjoy it while it lasts, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So it has gotten pretty sophisticated, but none of that has really gotten to ultra running in a big way. So that is something that needs to happen as more money yeah. comes into the sport. Um, yeah. The only random test I've ever had was at world hundred K's in 2014. I was rooming with a guy, his name is Max King and he's, he's, been he's done so much stuff in like both track and field ultra marathon marathon all sorts of stuff so we were we were rooming together and uh at that time i had just broke the 100 mile american record and 12 hour world record and max had all sorts of accomplishments so like we get random randomly selected <laughs> of course and so we had to go down and do like the, the the testing protocol stuff like i think it was like three days before the event or something like that Interesting. but that was the extent of any random test because after a race i just assume if i break a record right. i'm gonna have to i'm gonna produce yeah. a sample and and get tested but yeah what do you know if the uh the like world majors they test like those elites 
for for like marathons oh yeah yeah, yeah. they're probably on a rant they're all probably in the testing pool okay. so they could show up and test them the hard part is it's so world or the anti-doping agency works through the different like essentially you have to have the country on board oh, okay. because like if they're not doing their due diligence then like it just gets like in trouble right. and this is what russia got in trouble for is that like the Icarus thing? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So they were kind of bypassing the system because the state was on board. The, the state testing stuff was like, that makes sense. yeah, they were in in on it. So That documentary is crazy. I know. It's pretty wild. Yeah. So Kenya is under some trouble right now, but kind of for a different system. I don't suspect like Kenya anti-doping is the problem. The problem with that is these agents, essentially, where you have you have these men and women who are like unknown, but incredibly fast. Yeah. And it's like... You, this agent goes in and says, oh, well, I can turn you into a professional athlete, essentially, and cash in on that because they're getting a percentage of it. But the, these people, are, I, I always wonder how many of these people actually even know that they're doing something wrong half the time because right. they might just be getting, like, told what to do, essentially, to some yeah. degree. If they're, I mean, we were just talking before we recorded, Kiptum was like a goat farmer before yeah. he became <laughs> yeah. the world's fastest marathoner. <laughs> That's so crazy. So it's like, yeah, you, you can, it's like a different, it's hard to look at it through like the American lens the right. same way. And it's just, yeah, yeah, it's wild, but they get a lot stricter in terms yeah. of testing with that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. I know, I remember I heard from uh, like the whole Lance Armstrong era, like when he was, when all the Tour de France is like, you have to go down the line to like 24th yeah. place for the, to find the first clean person that they uh -huh. knew of. It's like, and he was probably just doing a better job and not getting caught. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's hard because it kind of reminds me of the super shoe thing, which is why I brought it up is it's like, if everybody's doing it, like where do you draw the line? If yeah. It kind of evens the playing field to some extent. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's hard to, it's like all this gray area basically. Yeah. Yeah. You'd probably have the same debates if you just said like, all right, let's just unregulate because yeah. you'd have, there are, that's the other thing is like, cause when Lance's argument kind of was like, well, everyone was doing it, but you're going to have hyper responders to everything. So like if everyone, if every professional athlete got on EPO, there'd be a range of benefits from one to the next right. two. So then it's also, you know, there's that side of that same debate of, are you the 2% super shoe person or the 8% super shoe person? Right. Yeah. And if you got the, the bad hand and you're just you're yeah, screwed. Yeah. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. Dude. Talk about running all day with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the moral of the story is enjoy the sport so you don't have to worry about, about that. Exactly. So you have, a, you have a benefit from doing it either way. That's right. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, before I let you go, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, Instagram's probably the number one place to reach out and connect. Uh, my handle is Jeremy Miller, and there's a dot between the E and the R on Miller. But just look up Jeremy Miller. Should be the first one on there, hopefully. Yeah, you've got a great Instagram account, so it's fun to see all the stuff you're putting up out there. So hopefully everyone will give you a follow. Yeah, there. And then uh, I've also got the podcast. Jeremy, yeah. Jeremy Miller podcast had Zach on there uh, a while back. Uh, YouTube channel uh, posts like vlogs, long-form content there. And uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. You're you're gonna be my first like official. Uh, let's see why people are coming into ultra running. Is interviews. that the name of the series? I, I, <laughs> maybe I should refine that a little bit. But <laughs> I like it. Let's let's, let's see. see who's coming to ultra. Running. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Now, I like the series. It's a great idea and it's cool. Um, I feel like again you're gonna hit maybe a whole another audience of people and uh, get more people into the sport, which is always awesome. Yeah, hopefully. Heck yeah. Thanks again, dude. This is a blast. Yeah, yeah. Take care. Have a good one. All right, everyone. If you're still here, you're sticking around to hear about how I use the show sponsor Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. 
For Element, they make an electrolyte supplement. So what I know about me is that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid loss. So what that means is if I go out for a run and I lose two liters of sweat, then I'm also going to lose roughly 1,228 milligrams of electrolytes with it, which ironically happens to be about one packet of element. So what I likely will do is if I'm going out for a longer training session or I'm going to be out in the heat and sweating a lot, I'm going to supplement the fluid intake I have with electrolyte to make sure I have that stuff in balance. The way this usually looks for me is I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll put half of one of those packets in with my coffee. It will be one of their chocolate flavors though because it's coffee after all. I'm not going to stick one of the fruity flavors in there. So that gets me kicked off. Then what happens is I go out for the workout and then I am drinking basically to thirst, but I am also targeting some numbers at times when it's hot enough and I know what my sweat loss is. But generally speaking, for every liter of fluid I'm taking in, I'm matching that with 614 milligrams of electrolytes to make sure I'm staying on top of that and remaining hydrated throughout that training session. If you're interested in a deep dive and figuring out more about your fluid loss and electrolyte needs, I actually have a couple podcast episodes that might be interesting to you. One is episode 358 with Andy Blow, where I go over all things hydration. And he talks about how I came up with that 614 milligram loss number and how you can maybe find out about yours as well as how much fluid you are losing with some simple at-home tests. Also, I did an episode a while back, episode 300, which is just titled Personalizing Workout Hydration. So check out both of those if you're interested in doing a deep dive into your hydration and electrolyte needs. Something new I added to my training and racing this year are exogenous ketones. The research for exogenous ketones is still in its early stages, but there is a lot coming out and it is getting more convincing in my opinion to the degree where I wanted to try it out. I actually stress tested it during a 15 hour 100 mile run at the Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year as a way to confirm whether it was something I was going to include in my racing protocol. One thing I was a little nervous about with exogenous ketones, like I am with anything I'm ingesting during an ultra marathon, is what is going to do to digestion. I was interested in the recovery research for some time now with exogenous ketones, and there are some newer research studies now that suggest it could also have some performance applications as well, if you're able to tolerate it and get it in the right dose. So when I decided to try it out, I went with Delta G ketones because they are the ketone ester that basically all the research that has promising effects is tied to and it's their formula that's being used in those research studies. So a lot of times you'll just go and look for an exogenous ketone and there's all sorts of potential issues with that, whether it's a dosage or just an incorrect type and it's not actually going to do what the research suggests it would do. So to me, it was looking at if I want to potentially get the benefits that these could be bringing, I need to be using the one that they're actually showing the research with. So that was Delta G ketones. They actually received the DARPA funding and grant to actually put together that formula. So like I said in the, the intro message, they have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with this right now, and this is something where I am evolving as I kind of do more with it, but at the moment, I'll do a bottle of their ketone performance, Delta G performance, and that is their little blue bottle. So I'll take one of those about 20 minutes before a big key training session, and that's it. 
If it's a race day though, I'll do that same protocol, but I will take another bottle about every three hours after that. So if I'm doing something that's longer duration, like that 15 hour Rocky Raccoon effort I just described, I would be doing that again at three, six, nine, and 12 during that particular performance. So like I said in the intro, if you want to chat with one of their experts, you can actually go to deltagketones.com and they have a consultation service there right now where they will help you understand the research and whether your lifestyle is even something that they would, they would be worth considering it for. So if you want to get a little more information on that, that option is available to you. Links to both Delta G ketones and element electrolytes can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 